is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic to cosplay to Schitt's Creek to Supernatural and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, really quickly, I forgot in this episode to announce our final quiz winner, because as you know, we had one question that for some reason nobody could get um, for our 100th uh, episode celebration, and that question was, what is the name of the game Ben Wyatt from Parks and Rec creates? And the answer was Cones of Dunshire, and the winner is Glazia from the Classical Adventures for One podcast. So congratulations. And just a note, we had a huge blizzard here in Colorado, so these stickers will be sent out uh, late this week. So just wanted to let everybody know that. Also, quick trigger warning, we talk a lot about mental illness and suicide in this episode. So if either of those things are triggering for you, I would say to tread lightly with this one. Thank you again, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of It's a Fandom Thing. We are going to be talking about a movie that Aaron has a very healthy obsession with, Donnie Darko. Um, as I've mentioned numerous times before, this is, I say it's my second favorite movie, but really it's, I should say my first since I've watched it over 60 times. And I may have created this podcast just so one day I could talk about this movie. So uh, so I'm super excited and I'm super excited for our panel. We have two great frequent panelists and then two awesome guest panelists joining us. So I'm very excited about that. But before I have them introduce themselves, just a quick housekeeping note. As always, we are taking listener support for as little as 99 cents a month to $9.99 a month. If you want to support the show, feel free to head over on to, to our anchor page and click listener support there or click the link in the show notes. And remember, 50% of what we see from that will go to one Black Lives Matter organization per month. And also, we have our Redbubble store. So if you need a new mask, shirt, sweatshirt, anything like that, some fandom merch, head on over there. And again, 50% of what we see from that also goes to one Black Lives Matter organization per month. Okay, introduce my awesome panel and let them tell me one thing they're into in pop culture right now. Start with you, Carla. Hi. This week I have, you know, as I usually do, many ongoing obsessions, but primarily I'm sticking to Adam Lambert, specifically his version of Mad World. And yes, it's because, you know, we're rewatching this film like 30 times this week, <laughs> but also just because for my money, it's hands down the best version of this particular uh, spin on the song. Um, 
I will not accept disagreements. I am very sorry. That's just the rules. <laughs> uh, that's funny. You no, know, that that is a good version. I haven't listened to that version in forever. So I'll try not to disagree with you there. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and Sasha. Um, I haven't heard that version. So Carla, don't kill me. Um, but I will immediately I will. after this go listen I'll to just it. T- yes, I'll, I'll just tell you that you need to go listen to it ASAP. Just yeah, throwing that in there. No I'm gonna, pressure. I'm going to finish recording this first. And then go. I mean, I guess. Aaron will kill me if I just disappear. I mean, she might. (laughs) Fine. I guess you can wait. Um, All right. So the thing I'm into right now is uh, my husband and I are rewatching Big Bang Theory on HBO Max. So we're binging that. We're currently in the 12th and final season. Cool. You didn't mention your puppy. Oh. Potty training your puppy. Uh, What I am not into... What I am not into today, because in Colorado, we are in a blizzard, and there is at least two feet of snow in my yard. I have a dachshund puppy who is not two feet tall, um, and just we're trying to get him housebroken. And he's pretty much been good for the last week and a half until today. And now he's stressed because he doesn't want to go outside in the snow because it's cold, but then he doesn't want to potty in the hat. It's a whole... We're not... It's bad. Okay, and our special guests, we have with us Josh Rubin, who, of course, we did an interview with a couple weeks back. If you haven't listened to that interview, go listen to it. He, of course, is the writer and director of Scare Me, which you can rent on VOD. It's on Blu-ray, DVD. And he also has Werewolves Within coming out on June 25th, which I'm very excited for. And then alongside Josh is his fiance, who's also a very talented director, Lauren Sick, who has probably one of my favorite names I've heard in the past, like, three months. Um, (laughs) And she has a, excuse me, short psychological horror film, Pair, which is making the rounds right now in film festivals. It was recently accepted to Cannes World Film Festival, which is so awesome, and took home some awards at the L.A. International Shorts Fest for Best Horror Short and Best Female Director. So congratulations again. And then in addition to narrative work, um, and she also was a creative collaborator on Josh's film, Scare Me. She also does commercial and music video directing and worked with like artists like A-Track, American Authors, Chromio, Mariah and the Scientists, Foster the People. So I'm just so excited to have both of you on. So if you both want to tell me something that you're into right now, film, television, anything like that. <laughs> that right there. Oh, yeah. I have been uh, obsessively reading The Stand by Stephen King for the first time. Um, so I am over 900 pages deep. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's just been an incredible read. Um, and also we've been watching a lot of um, old school HBO series. So we, we got through uh, Six Feet Under, which I, I, I watched for the first time, which now is like a top five all-time favorite series. Um, and we're getting into The Sopranos now. Bless them you, know, you know, I've never watched The Sopranos. <laughs> I should watch yeah. The Sopranos. Yeah, I've seen episodes here or there from like mm-hmm. scattershot like, across a couple different seasons, but never sat down and watched the whole thing. So we're, yeah. we're about through season one. Yeah, and Six Feet Under. Oh, oh. God, I love Six so Feet good. Under. Especially yeah. David and Michael C. Hall. Oof. Oh, yeah, Michael C. Hall. So, yeah, yeah that's that's a great one. That's a great yeah. one. Yeah. And then, Josh, what are you into? 
the HBO series I rediscovered or started watching recently, like binging, was the Spawn animated series that Todd McFarlane put out in the, um, I think, late 90s. Uh, it's so dreadful and um, bleak and ridiculous. I love it. It's it's kind of got an anime style to it. It's violent and um, bleak. And yeah, I've been really, really enjoying that. You know, when uh, Lauren was out of town on a job, I just slammed through like two and a half seasons of it. It was pretty, pretty killer. Yeah, huh. yeah. yeah I haven't watched that one either. So he gets, all it. List here. He, gets all his, he gets all his cartoons in while I'm, while I'm at <laughs> all yeah, my I'm a- cartoons. <laughs> I'm not a big animated fan. Um, I've said that before on here. So, yeah, it's. I just was watching because we did an episode about Big Mouth. I don't know if anyone else has watched Big yeah. Mouth, and that was actually really good. But I'm just, yeah, I'm yeah. Really I I never have been either. But Spawn was one of the last thing I used to watch it like in tandem with Tales from the Crypt when I was younger, and oh, yeah. I've just really been enjoying it. You only can do a couple at a time because it's pretty intense. But yeah, yeah. Well, and speaking of the one where he's got like the big, crazy, dramatic cape. And so he's always got like he lunges and the cape is like six frames later, comes in and wraps around. Yeah, Yeah, the cape. I've seen parts of that. Yeah, it protects him. It's cool. It's really cool. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And um, speaking of dark, what I'm into, and it's weird because I don't think I'll ever watch it again. (laughs) I don't think it's for everybody. But I don't know if anybody else has seen the movie Possessor. Brandon Cronenberg. You've seen me talk about Possessor. Yes, and now I'm like fascinated and also really scared from it. So well, I'll probably end up watching it and then blaming you for my nightmares. (laughs) If you can't do body horror or anything like that, I I would say skip it because it's it's very intense and it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot to take in, but the performances are really good and special effects, everything like that. It's, it's, it's really well done, but I don't think I will ever watch it again, but that's on. (laughs) Or you can rent it. Okay. So let's get into Donnie Darko. So what I first want to ask everybody is what your initial impressions were of the film, Carla. I had so many initial impressions because, you know, you watch the movie the first time around and you kind of leave with this overwhelming sensation of what, you know, like, what did I just watch? What just happened to my face? I don't understand anything in the, in, in the world anymore. And in a sense, this is also how I felt after having watched the matrix. It's the same feeling of there is so much more to this. I need to watch this six or seven, 8,000 more times before I I'll really understand any of it. And no matter how much you watch it, every time that you go back and see it, there's something new to pick up on. So it's it's part of why it's endlessly entertaining and endlessly puzzling. And my degree is in psychology. And even though I didn't pursue it as a, as, as a career, you know, I'm still very fascinated by the subject. So when I watched it the first time, I really tried to make sense, sense of it through what I do know, because what I don't know is vast. I don't know anything about time travel. I don't really know much about sci-fi. And it's honestly super intimidating to me, all of these concepts. But psychology, I do get. So I was mostly sticking to, okay, well, this is somebody who's, who's been presented as um, possibly gifted, definitely paranoid schizophrenic, what that means for the character, what that means for his interactions with his world, 
and how you know how I could reconcile those things that I know with the ending and um that's why I had to watch it a million more times because I, I never could like there's it's not just a time travel film and it's not just a depiction of um a young like this young guy's um schizophrenia manifesting it's both and it's so much more than that so yeah my initial reaction was just eh. <laughs> and of course i'm the one who made made you watch that i'm i'm adding that in there because yes. i need everybody watch this <laughs> yes and let me tell you like you know i i like to say that i blame people for when i watch stuff i'm like oh it's your fault that I, I'm never getting these, you know, moments of my life back. This is after I watched the Gilmore Girls, which I will forever rag on Meg about that. Um, but I will always thank you for making me watch Donnie Darko because it is such a good movie. So good job. Yay me. <laughs> and and um, Josh? Uh, well, as a, I was, I think I was 18. It didn't it come out in 2001. Just after 9-11. Yeah, it's, it's just so turned 20 this year. Yeah, I was 18 years old and just moved to the city weeks after 9-11 to an, went going to an acting program, living by myself, which is kind of crazy. And I, I remember going to see it by myself and thinking it was so transcendental and so transportive on the one hand, and then also encompassed everything that I'd ever wanted to be a part of, ever wanted to make, even without necessarily knowing it. When I watched it, I just kind of was so happy to be on the ride. Um, it wasn't confusing. I, I sort of got it without getting the logic of it. So I just remember thinking it, it hit every part of my genre-loving lizard palette, my like lizard brain, the quote-unquote creature effects the sci-fi element, the acting performances, the irreverence and humor, um, and the world of it. It reminded me of you know the suburbs where I grew up with the cul-de-sac and the bikes and the teen angst and everything. And I, I thought it was both everything I understood and everything I wanted to make while totally not really understanding it. It was just something about it where I just wanted to live in that world because it felt like a world I, I grew up in, mm-hmm. weirdly. Yeah. Yeah. Lauren. Yeah. I feel really similarly to to Josh. I I remember watching, I was in high school when it came out and um, I remember watching it with my friends who were, we were all like a little kind of gaggle of outsiders who were really into film, really into music. Um, And I think, you know, I remember watching it at my friend Mike's house and we, uh, we watched it once finished it all kind of looked around the room at each other and we were like holy shit let's watch it again and we watched it again that night we immediately pressed play um and you know I think I think that was sort of the beginnings too of my um you know as you mentioned at the top I have a, a music video background and there was something too about the way that he that he integrated music and and needle drops and just this sort of like lyrical musicality throughout the entire film that just touched so much on on the like ethereal nature of the teenage experience and I think just for when I when I watched it it really just connected with me it's visceral that way yeah mm-hmm. yeah very much so very much so and Sasha hard to add to any of that. I mean, Carla <laughs> stepped all over my psych toes. So, you know, 
she just stole that train from me. I tend to do that. I know. Usually it's Meg, so <laughs> I know. need to step up. Um, yeah, I think similar to everybody else, it was it was that mind game of it that you went, was it real? Was it not? Did it happen? Did it not? Um, and then just the fact that it was, you know, the music was perfect. Everything, every song and snippet was spot on for the scene that it was. It was phenomenal. And it's, it has that, if John Hughes went dark, (laughs) you know, it's got that 80s John Hughes high school vibe, only Mm -hmm. a little more dark and twisty and damaged. Um, well, I remember very clearly first time seeing this because it was the very first movie that I rented from Netflix. So it was the very first movie I got from Netflix. Um, it was the first time I'd ever seen Jake Gyllenhaal in anything too. Um, like I don't think I'd seen October Sky or anything before that. And I just remember watching it by myself and being so overwhelmed with it, um, crying, like sobbing when it was over, um, and feeling like I, it's so hard to completely put into words, but it was like reaching into my soul kind of movie, um, touching deep inside. And, uh, to me, it's not so much about time travel in my mind. I've never thought of it as that. I thought of it much more about mental health and dealing with that. And, um, you know, if you're at all an outsider, like I was like that too, like, like you mentioned Lauren and, you know, hanging out with people that weren't the quote unquote popular people and all the artists. And I went to a high school that was all focused on art and focused on music and all that stuff. And so it was very much like watching myself in high school and watching who I hung out with in high school and watching a movie that basically treated someone who was the outsider and who was like going to therapy and who wasn't thought of as like, you know, the kid that had it all together and treating them like a hero because that's really what he is in the end. And that was pretty amazing to see. And that's why it really, really touched me deeply. And the music, I, like I've said millions of times on here, I could give up film. It'd be hard. I could give up writing. I could give up lots of things, but I could not give up music. I could never give up music. Music means more to me than anything else. And so the music in here was so amazing. And like I said, every needle drop, everything like that worked so well together and painted such a great picture and put you right in there. And, um, you know, I remember when I first watched it, I instantly watched it again. And then I watched it every day for a week while I had it and that until I knew for sure I was getting the DVD, got the DVD, watched it or watched part of it or watched the commentary or watched just the end every day for the full month. That's how much I loved this movie. Um, And then I just made sure everybody I knew watched it. So even my mom, who this is so not her type of movie. I said, you have to watch this because you will see part of me in this movie. And it was just that kind of thing where I just made sure everybody watched it. And yeah, it's just, you know, my mom actually asked me the other day because I told her we were recording this. She's like, well, can you just sum up in a sentence why you love this movie? Like, I can't sum up in a sentence why I love this movie. Um, But really, if I were, it would be just this movie speaks to me on a deep, personal, personal level. 
like very few movies do. And I think that's the power of film is when it can do that, when an art form can do that and get inside you and bear bury itself inside you and you can remember scenes and you hear a song, you instantly think of it. Like every time I hear the killing moon, I instantly think of Donnie Darko. It's just, you know, mad world, anything like that. Any movie that can do that or a film that can do that is just amazing and spectacular. And that's why we love art and that's why we love film. And yeah. So yeah, that was shorter than I thought it would be when I did that. (laughs) (laughs) So the film is set in the eighties. So I want to talk about that. Um, and what you think maybe the film says about the decades, about the suburbs. And of course, we can talk about the music too and favorite needle drops, Carla. That is such fertile ground because there's so much going on with this. I feel like the lady, the, the 80s, particularly the late 80s, were such an interesting time because there was so much going on in the world, so much hanging in the balance. You had the um, Bush Dukakis um, debates and then, you know, the election. Um, what could have been if Bush had lost, you know, what might have happened in the world. And that would have been even, you know, like that, that's part of why to me the time travel aspect is interesting because, you know, what if something could have changed in that sense? Um, But also I feel like if you're a white middle-class person in the nineties, it was mostly a time of quiet prosperity and maybe in your own personal world, things were okay maybe even good, but, you know, who could have seen 9-11 coming? Because the movie was released, well, it was filmed before that. It was released shortly after that. And then the movie was written in 1998. Who could have seen Columbine coming? So, you know, we, we go from this era of relative safety and prosperity and kind of innocence for white middle-class America to a much scarier, darker time for everybody. And like, this is one of those things where um, we really start to become more intermingled as a society in the United States, because we don't, uh, up until that point, it's like, you know, the U.S. is a melting pot supposedly, but it's really not because it's still, um, even to this day, of course, it's still uh, this huge cloud of white supremacy, but Back then, you said the quiet part quietly. Like, there wasn't, you know, we didn't shout it from the rooftops. It was just, oh, everything's mm-hmm. good. You know, like, for everybody, because they're thinking everybody's white. So it's in the early 2000s when we really start to see each other. And it's also the dawn of, you know, the internet and of being able to communicate more directly and openly with one another without the barriers that um, socioeconomic class and uh you know, schooling, segregation, and all of that, that still exist, place on us. So that that for me was like the big interesting thing about the setting being in the 80s, um, when for a lot of people, it's not that recollection of innocence and safety, but you can, you get to see it from the perspective of, of a, of a white middle-class person. And Josh? Um, I, I was born in 83 and, um, went to private school, uh, my first and second, I think for first, second, maybe even third grade. It was just kind of the thing. Cause I grew up in that affluent, very Caucasian neighborhood in Potomac, Maryland. 
and was the kid with no friends who had the big imagination and was like the outsider within that group. I kind of always was until like late high school. And so it was personal in that, in that sense. I think what jumps out at it for me, um, like what Carla was just saying is in that kind of American beauty sort of sense, he represented or he spoke out in what was obviously a fractured community that was, you know, sort of operating behind the veneer of perfection and white perfect class and calling people out on their shit. I mean, calling out Beth Grant's character, you know, calling out Kitty and Patrick Swayze's character and the people around him. Um, and that what was so refreshing and cathartic about it for me Um and just when I think about the film in, in, in the context of, of the 80s, because I was it was, you know, such a a, a a wee one back in the day. And I look I look back at it as, you know, a, a, a wonderful time in the sense of, you know, the um, the childhood, but also uh, wishing that I had the backbone. I mean, I wasn't as old as, you know, Darko was obviously in that age but you know it's it's a it's a catharsis to think that you could kind of cut through it all and call out the imperfection um and so uh in that sense um it 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 impacts me yeah lauren i was i was thinking of it um really almost just what Carla was saying, particularly about Columbine and 9-11. This doesn't have that much to do about what the movie being set in the 80s necessarily, but but in terms of, you know, that slice of time, the late 80s, just sort of like, I think all like, like you said, the white middle-class baby boomers were like making all their money and buying up all their fancy houses with their crystal chandeliers, like Mr. and Mrs. Darko. And, um, and then kind of just seeing, you know, that on screen and then being again, like I said, in high school in 2001, during 9-11, during Columbine, um, and and when this movie came out and how it, it somehow, though set in the past, really seemed to crystallize everything that was happening in the present in such a such a poignant way. Um, you know, I was also just very, very young in the in the 80s, so didn't have any much personal experience with that. But I think that like um, being able to connect that decade um, that I only got to experience a few young years of life um, with my current experience was a really uh, b- just bizarre and, and cool sort of alignment. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, like that. And Sasha? So the film is set in 88, and I was early teen. Don't do the math on that. Um, but I grew up not in that setting at all, because I grew up in Colorado, in the foothills, in a small mountain town. So... Suburbs, to me, was not something I was familiar with at all growing up. So seeing these, you know, like all those movies that are set in the 80s and this one being set there, that is a very bizarre thing for me. But I do think that it speaks to the decade in that, like, the chandelier. Who has chandeliers? Who are these people? Because I don't know these people. I do not know them now. I don't know these chandelier people. I feel like I want to meet a chandelier person just because I'm curious. 
I like, honestly, I just, I want to know, um, you know, obviously now I live in the suburbs, but it's not that cul-de-sac-y community thing. I live in an older community. So I, for me, that was never anything that I was accustomed to growing up. So I didn't have that kind of connection to it, but I think it speaks to the eighties, very like just that ridiculousness. Like here's this grand home. They're going down that shot down the hallway. And I think it's Seth Rogen that's in it, right? Mm -hmm. With the other guy and he's giving him a bump of cocaine. I'm like, how eighties can you get? You know? So it just, it's got that. And when Drew, I forgot that Drew Barrymore was in it. Um, and she walked by and she had the shoulder pads that were like, yeah. I know this isn't video when people listen to it. I'm doing shoulder pads big <laughs> for our audience, you know, so it just, it spoke to it. Yeah. And she also uh, produced the film, her uh, company, her, her production company just thrown out there. Um, yeah. I, I was in in the 80s I was in late 80s I was in middle school and I grew up in a neighborhood in Denver that's like really like you know where a lot of hippies ended up going um and I had a mom I was raised by a single mom who you know she like lived in San Francisco during the late 60s early 70s very hippie um and So I couldn't relate entirely because I didn't have like a wealthy family at all, you know, living with a single mom. It wasn't like that. Um, So I didn't have that at all. But the part that you can relate to is in the 80s, we would go out, we would literally go out to play and then be back when the street lamps came on. That's when you had to be home. So we'd be out making up stories. We'd make up mysteries. We'd like have walkie talkies and, you know, I'd make up plays and put on plays for the neighborhood and that kind of stuff. So it was a very different kind of decade where you were, you know, they say the latchkey children, where it was, you were just kind of given a lot more freedom. We had babysitters, but we would barely see our babysitters. It would just be like, go out and play and have fun and good luck. Um, You know, and we had certain things that happened to us that were scary and terrifying and all all of that. Um, But it was a very, it was a very interesting time because I think there was a lot of struggle that people didn't really talk about, a lot of financial struggle, a lot of um, class struggle, um, a lot of racial struggle, and that wasn't mentioned a lot. And I think setting this in the suburbs where everybody kind of lived in this safe little world where they weren't going to have to be impacted by that, you know, uh, Reagan and all that stuff was a good thing when it when Reagan hurt a lot of people in this country. Um and so to set it there and set it in the suburbs and have somebody calling out all of that and calling out people on their bullshit and calling out people on being fake and not real and the whole crap about fear and love being all there is and how there's so much more to that and how all these people that are supposedly so pure and wonderful and amazing have so many deep, dark secrets inside of them and they're not necessarily good people and they don't necessarily do good things And I experienced that a lot because I had a lot of friends that were very rich and very well off. And, you know, you would see behind the curtain a lot where it would be like, oh, we have this perfect family, but we really don't. 
and we really don't talk to each other, really don't know each other. And then when I was in high school in the 90s and I went to high school up in uh, Boulder, which if you don't know Boulder, Boulder is very much like they say it's basically its own little town surrounded by reality. So it's where a lot of hippies went and they became yuppies, basically. So they were yippies and people up there lived in their own little world and they'd come down to Denver and they thought Denver was just filled with cowboys and thugs is how they would put it. And they would literally be afraid to be walking down a street in Denver. I mean, and like driving and all that stuff. So they lived in this whole little insular world. And so I think that's a lot of what this movie talks about is when you live in your own bubble of privilege and you don't understand anything outside of that bubble um, or you don't recognize uh, the fractures in that bubble or the fractures in that world that you're living in. And I just think it calls that out so perfectly, um, especially when it comes to mental health. I really think with the mental health aspect, it really, really talks to that a lot. Um, and that's one of the things I appreciate the most about it is, and I know we're going to get into the family here, but I'll just say having a, the mother, having her say to her son how happy she is to have a son that is so screwed up and messed up and is weird is so beautiful because that's not something you see. I mean, a big thing that happened in the 90s that, you know, we're going to be talking about mental health depictions next week. But a big thing that happened in the 90s is a lot of kids were thrown into psychiatric facilities simply because their parents didn't want to deal with them. So I had a lot of friends that went through that. I personally, I will be open about it. I was because I was suicidal and you were thrown and I had people in there that were thrown in there because their parents simply didn't want to deal with them. And so they were thrown in there they would make all this money, they'd be drugged up, all this stuff, and then they'd be just tossed out once the insurance money ran out. And then their whole lives just kind of, you know, faltered after that. And so for me, this speaks to a lot of that too, about how we treat people who have any kind of mental illness or deal with that at all. So yeah, I know I went on a little tangent there, but um, but that's one of the things I appreciate so much about it. Um, well, let's talk about the music. Let's get back to the music here a little bit. And Carla, what is maybe your favorite, if you have one, if you can say what your favorite needle drop is? If I have one, well, I have several, but I'll just stick with one, which is the uh, Head Over Heels, which is just one of the most perfect uses of music in, I think, anything I've seen. Because it's, you know, anytime that you hear anything by Tears for Fears, there's this... this uh, layer over it of just pop happiness but then you listen to the lyrics and there's so much more to it and then you start getting kind of sad and you're like oh no where am I going and this is like the perfect kind of thing because it's it's a movie about high school you know high school movies are supposed to be frothy and kind of vapid and, and everything so I think especially if you've never heard the song and if this is your first time watching it you're just watching a high school introduction scene and then it gets darker and darker as it moves on um not because of the music the music is just ha- just happens to be perfect if you know the lyrics but you have the the moments of um of the drug use of uh beth grant as kitty farmer you know 
staring down a student as she's holding her very creepy book and starts following him. And it's that, that, that quick moment where they speed her up as she's walking behind mm-hmm. him that it's, it's just, it portends something and you're not sure what, but then you're distracted quickly because you're looking suddenly at Gretchen and she's looking in the mirror. She looks up, she starts to walk away. So it's all of these really cool things that, that they're introducing all of these characters that are so important to the rest of the story very quickly and they're giving you brief moments of um, of, a, of a glimpse into how they might factor into the rest of it, but they don't give you enough and they quickly distract you from what's going on to give you something else. And it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I love it. And, uh, you know, no, I'm not going to mention any others because, oh, I could be here forever about that. But I just absolutely love the way that it works, the way that the camera moves, the way that they slow down and speed up at just the perfect moment, the way that uh, Drew Barrymore just kind of um, goes from being happy next to Noah Wilde or having a chat that they meet Jim Cunningham and Kitty Farmer. And suddenly, like, you know, she turns and she looks at the little uh, baby dancers from Sparkle Motion and she, her soul kind of leaves her because she's like, oh, what we're doing to the youth. You know, these women are you know, these young women are being choreographed into this, these like insipid things. And she just throws her, her big cup into the garbage with like, kind of like, Oh, I can't believe this is my world now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's just kind of perfect. So, so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Josh, what's yours? That's, that's mine too. I mean, the, you know, and you, you can see it in the production diary how he meant it from the, um, from the onset. That was the initial song. Or was it the NSS song? I can't remember. Cause I, cause I know in the director's cut, you hear all the initial, which I have to say, I'm glad they didn't go with those songs, but yeah. I can't remember if it is the NSS I think song. For this I can't one, remember. I think it was for, yeah. I think for this one, this is the one that they wanted to go with. I yeah. think I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, just, just the, um, just the deaf filmmaking and how it kind of netted out with the ramp thing and everything. It just, it was wonderful. I mean, you know, I, I'm that, that just, just because, you know, Carly, you'd, you'd mentioned it and there are, there are many others. I mean, how mad world, obviously when that piano comes in and sums up the entire film, like a Greek chorus in a way, I think on laughing uh, Donnie and, you know, the engine cutting through the ceiling and everything, there's nothing more profound. That's it. Hits, hits on a major level. Mm-hmm. Lauren yeah I, well um piggybacking off of that I guess I, I'm kind of going to cheat a little bit and use it as like a bookend answer because I think Killing Moon and Mad World as a sort of twofer to open and close the film are just such a such a beautiful um like just they work so well in tandem I mean I think to you learn so much about the tone of the movie and what is to come in the first, when you hear that first chord when he's riding his bike. Mm. Um, And I love that it comes out of this sort of like bizarre uh, creeping this, you know, this steady cam shot of him at the edge of this mountain range. And it's so still and it's so beautiful and it's so serene and birds are chirping, but here's this kid lying in the middle of the street Mm. who could get hit by a car at any moment. And, you know, when he wakes up, you it, it there's something um, 
foreboding about it. Uh, and then to be hit with this like pop song, but it's also, you know, like you were saying about, about the Tears for Fear song, there's like, a, there's this darkness um, that it's laced with. And I think to introducing the family and introducing the dark com the dark comedy, you know, you see the dad with the leaf blower blowing it at Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, you see mom reading it by Stephen King. Like there's so much kind of going on there in that, that opening track. And then, you know, as Josh said with Mad World, I think that the, those lyrics and that rendition of that song, um, particularly when you see, uh, Frank in that sequence, um, that really kind of struck me with the lyrics, you know, the dreams in which I'm dying are the best I ever had. Um, there was just something that, that really was so, so poignant about that. You're, you know, the perfect track to, to mull over and wonder whether, whether any of these characters in this timeline have any idea of what actually happened in this sort of alternate universe. Mm -hmm. It's very Magnolia, actually, in that way. They're just a lip sync mm -hmm. away, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the way he touches his eye. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, oh, yeah. And then Sasha. Uh, Mad World, like, hands down. <laughs> It's Mad World because the it and you're right, Lauren. It's the combination of the lyrics at the end over everybody in that final like what is happening, you know, and just the progression of all of them and going, well, did you know where are they at? Do they know what's happening? So for me, Mad World is the one. Anytime I hear it on the radio, I immediately am back to Donnie Darko. Anytime, mm -hmm. um, and it is. I will listen to the Adam Lambert version for Carla's sake, but the version that's in the movie, it, it's just the way that it's done. I think it's going to be probably the, the best way to do it. No, just that. Absolutely. I mean, the Adam Lambert, Lambert version is my favorite to listen to, but as far as what goes with the movie, yeah. the version that's in there is perfect. Mm -hmm. The fact that they, at least from what they had mentioned that they it just kind of, they just did it on a whim and just kind of mm -hmm. did There's something about how, um, uh, how honest it is that, that hits for the sake of two where, how, you know, where it plays in the film. Um, yeah, it's pretty mad, pretty magical that way. You can kind of feel it. Yeah. And it goes with, I mean, like those lyrics, you know, like the dr best dreams, you know, and it's that whole dream concept with his, mental illness and what's going on, what's real, what's not. It, it's just, mwah. And I think too, what he spoke about in therapy, you know, it's almost like Donnie has this final sort of like resignation about what his fate is. You know, he mm -hmm. talks to his therapist about what, you know, about his dog who died, you know, mm -hmm. who went away to be away from everybody to be alone so, so she could die. Um, and how that was what he, you know, what he didn't want expressly didn't want. Um, but yeah, so, so the combination of, of those, of those lyrics and of him laughing at the end and being quote unquote mad, you know, but also being, you know, as you mentioned, Aaron, this sort of savior, you know, this hero, this heroic yeah. figure, um, it all just coalesces and yeah, such a, such a perfect way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we did do a poll on Twitter and Instagram. So combining the two, Mad World definitely won, mm -hmm. I mean, hands down. Mm -hmm. um, but I agree with you, Lauren, with the book ending, because I know in the director's cut, it wasn't the Killing Moon in the beginning. And mm -hmm. I can't remember what it was, but it's just when you watch it, it's like 
it just does not work as well. Um, but yeah, I agree. Just having, you know, the, the needle drop there and how perfect it is and how it coincides with everything and how you're introduced to Donnie and you're not sure who he is yet. And then of course his family. And, um, and I know when he was just a little, when he had to ride that bicycle, I guess he didn't really have shoes on. So it was like just cutting into his feet the whole time. So can't imagine that, but, uh, but yeah, I agree with that. And then of course with mad world, it's the second it starts playing. The second you hear the piano, I start crying. It's just inevitable. Even when I've watched it, I watched it again last night and cried again. So it's just every time that happens, it's just, yeah, the tears just start flowing. But I think really, honestly, I think every song works perfect. I can't think of a single song that does not work. Um, and that's what is so perfect about this movie. Um, and that's why I'm so glad they were able to change the music, which was mainly for money reasons. Um, but I'm just really glad that happened because I think the music really helps so much and helps cement it in your mind. So, yeah. I also think Notorious for that dancing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It just slaps. I mean, you would, yeah. like, is it going to be the Pet Shop Boys? I don't know about that. I no, I know, because perfect. they wanted West End Girls for yeah, it. Well, uh, yeah. And it just would not have been the same no. at all. Uh-uh. And I mean, I, I'm also kind of biased because I can't stand the Pet Shop Boys because I was traumatized <laughs> by a manager. <laughs> no. Aaron, before you get upset at me, I have a very good reason. I used to work in a UCD store, and uh, we were allowed to play pretty much anything, but we had to vary it up. And one day, it was really, really slow at the store, and the manager's like, oh, I'm going to make today Pet Shop Boys Day. And so he just put on Pet Shop Boys the entire shift, and like a few hours in, I was seriously about to cry. I was like, can you please change it to something else? I just can't deal with this anymore. And like... At first, he was like, oh, whatever. You're just, you know, being ridiculous. I know you don't really like them all that much. But I was, like, seriously about to cry. And he caught that. And he's like, no, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, yes, I, I have <laughs> That's a legitimate reason. Thank you. Thank you for, for appreciating and acknowledging the horror and that I have. this is the last episode Carla is on. <laughs> hey, as she long as there's not, like, a full series of Pet Shop Boys episodes from here on out, I'm good. Okay, well, let's move on to the characters. And, um, of course, we're going to start with Donnie. So, Carla, what are your overall thoughts on Donnie? Okay, listen, I have 80,000 miles of notes on just Donnie. So, I'm going to try not to go there. I have not had that much wine, so we're probably good. Um, But, overall, the thing that I come away with when I watch this movie is just this deep-reaching sense of loneliness. Donnie is an intensely lonely, lonely person. And I think that there's a lot of that to do with mental illness. Because when you're part of the mental illness community, one of the big things about it is that loneliness, that feeling that you're the only one who's going through this and that you're the only one who understands what you're going through. And, you know, it's, it's different now to some degree. Um, there are, you know, there's a lot more connectedness that you can have through the internet, even if you don't have anybody close by that you can talk to, if you don't have a, a support group that you can go to, there's, um, I, I've, I've personally seen a lot of connection just on Twitter of people being able to find people with similar diagnoses, or even if it's a different diagnosis and they have similar um, life stories to share. We have this, uh, this method of connection that wasn't available in the 80s. And in the 80s, 
you know, you're kind of starting the process of destigmatizing mental illness because I think, you know, yeah, like closer to the 60s, even maybe the late 50s, there was more of a of an acceptance that mental illness is a thing that it's not just you know let's let's lock you know our crazy aunt up in the attic um that this is something that people are going through that they need help they need support they don't need just to be shoved away from where people can see them um so yeah uh but it's still very kind of early on and there's still because it's a small town and you're out in the suburbs there's a lot of possibility for shame. Um, even now, people aren't exactly like jumping out of the woods to say, oh, hi, I have this or I have that because they're afraid of being shunned by um, those around them. So Donnie is already pretty lonely. He's, um, and one of the the things with, with mental illness also is that, that that makes it particularly cruel is that you isolate yourself from your loved ones. So you cut off your own support network, um, not because it's a thing that you want to do, but because of the way illnesses can lie to you and tell you, you are alone. Your parents don't understand you. They don't care about you. Um, the therapist doesn't care. She's just being paid money. So it doesn't matter to her one way or the other, what you say or how you progress or don't. Um, and it's, interesting that in this alternate timeline Donnie starts to find people he starts to find you know he finds Gretchen and um, in a way he connects with Sharita also because she's also on the outside she's also um, othered and I know that we'll get to Sharita later so I'll, I'll leave everything else there but he does find those connections um, even with his with his friends, like he starts to be more vocal in the school. He starts to be more vocal. So he stopped, he stops repressing himself, letting himself just kind of be. And as we get towards the end of the film, he comes to realize that, Oh wow. I do love my mom and sisters. I love my dad. I care about these people. I don't want them to cease to exist. I, do want to set things quote unquote right. Um, and, and part of the reason that he's able to do this is because he does manage to force those connections throughout the film. Um, and I think if he hadn't had the opportunity to do that, maybe he wouldn't have been as invested in saving the world because, you know, maybe at that point he might've been like, who cares? We all go, I go, eh, it's all the same to me, but he, he, he did come to care. Now, you know, there are so many angles through which to look at Donnie. We have the idea of um, the divine savior versus um, superhero versus, uh, what is it, like the, the primary thingy? What is it called? What is Pro it called? Protagonist? No, 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 not protagonist. It's something specific that they called it... Um, I don't know, but I like the hand gesture that went with the primary. <laughs> <laughs> the primary thingy, you know, the thingy. I did I don't know the word. I'm like, I get very Alexis. I'm like, oh, primary yo-yo. Tell me the word. Yes, yes. primary, primary yo-yo. Yo um, well, I, I don't remember it, but, uh, but if we're looking at, because, okay, another thing about me is that I went to, to Catholic school all the way up through the end of college. So, huh, Bible stuff. All right, let's go. Um <laughs> 
so if we're looking at the savior angle, you know, Donnie's question of why becomes very important. He, through the movie, is wondering why. Why is he chosen? Like, why is the world coming to an end? Why does it hang on me? Like, you know, oh, why? Um, and similarly, you know, Jesus, before Judas's betrayal, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to have, you know, his one-on-one with God. And, um, and especially in the movie Jesus Christ Superstar, Jesus begs God for a reason why he should die. He says he's far too keen on where and how, and but not so hot on why, which is a very 70s way of saying, um, I get how this you want this to go down, but why am I doing it? And even though his question goes unanswered, he accepts his fate. And that's true for both Jesus and for, for Donnie. Um, and, you know, the, the thing where... Um, Mrs. Barrett tells him that every creature, every living creature dies alone. But what if they're remembered? Doesn't their legacy then go a bit further? Yes, you die alone, but part of you lives on in some way. Um, so, like, and, and that's the thing with the, the religious angle. Because I've seen, I'm just bringing it up solely because I have seen so many interpretations that are religious. Not because, like, I'm sitting here like, oh, well... <laughs> Bring out my Bible and be like, oh, well, let me tell you one. <laughs> um, but that's, it, it's just such an interesting uh, way of thinking about it. Like the, the superhero th- uh, theory is also interesting, but aren't superheroes just kind of another form of humans being empowered in a certain way to save the world? Mm-hmm. Whether it's through radiation or a spider bite, or if mm-hmm. it's your got part of God's plan, this is all something coming from outside of you. Why are you the one who who has to bear this burden? Yeah. Why do you have to rise to the occasion? In which, in what way is it fair? Um, so Donnie, who is young and is already struggling with a lot on his own, gets this burden added on top of him, and that's part of why I appreciate that it's not made about solely his uh his schizophrenia or not solely about time travel but that there's also this component of you know what is outside of everything and everybody that is raining down on him mm-hmm. and how does he handle it because i think he handles it the best way anybody could in his shoes um and also maybe because he's already experiencing sleepwalking and hallucinations maybe he's better prepared to handle something like this to to think outside of the the idea of like well you know clearly i'm imagining this because that doesn't exist he already has a a window into something else that could be that neurotypical or people who have a different kind of mental illness would not Hmm. That's, that's great thank you carla Yes. And I just want a quick side note, tangent, full circle uh, for any people who have read The Stand. So much of what you're talking about, Carla, is is similar to that book, just in terms of um, and a lot of what Donnie Darko t- uh, talks about, which is, you know, destiny and fate and free will. And, you know, um, that they're this sort of supernatural happenstance. Um, and and yeah, and, and being part of a, a very a very important part of quote unquote God's plan um, really begs a lot of those questions of, of destiny versus, versus free will, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And one thing, just real quick, that I forgot to add about that, that question of um, free will versus divine intervention. Bonnie already sees outside of the, the dichotomy. You know, like it's not fear and love. It's not free will and um, destiny. There's, there's so many other ways that this could go. And this is, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically of his confrontation with, um, with Ms. Farmer when she has that line, fear and love, and that's mm -hmm. all you get. And he says, no, that's not possible. That doesn't take into account the full spectrum of human emotion because it simply doesn't. Nothing can when you're reducing it to two things. There is no binary in the human emotion. And that's one of the, the things that I think makes Donnie um, a very interesting character, not because nobody else thinks like this, but because you know we're so focused on him and uh, he is so desperate for other people to see that. And I love that about him. Josh. I mean, I, I there's nothing I could possibly <laughs> add as profound uh, a point about Donnie. I, I'll say I, I what I what has me going back to the film, I think again and again, I maybe subconsciously, is that Donnie is an outsider who is in on a cosmic secret. Um, and I, I think that's the what I always latched onto as a an outsider of a kid was that I, I wished I had that or my imagination was that for me. I looked at it less through the lens of, you know, uh, um, um, mental health and more here is a contemporary um, who I think enjoyed his irreverence quirk and the fact that he was in on it, that kind of a wink. And then, and then leading into the catharsis of like, um, of the uh, of the realization of the of um, of that secret and knowing it and and you know again calling folks out on the fact that there isn't just love and fear on people's dirty dark secrets in this perfect bubble of a world in this mad world he's the character that has me going back to it and everyone else is kind of you know they're they're the they're the um, they're the icing that kind of sweetens the the ride for me. I mean, he's he's um, he's so relatable, especially to someone who was, um, you know, who who was in no way the popular kid who yet had the um, I think saw the world in a different way. Um, and I think that's why the the film has such a longevity to it. I mean, Richard Kelly, you know, this was twenty two years in the making or something for him to kind of take all of his love, right, of everything from Philip K. Dick to his high school experience in music and, and putting it into, you know, the masterpiece. So um, it's, yeah, he's the character that I keep, I keep coming back to. The film is, he's why I keep coming back to the film. Lauren. I mean, this is going to sound entirely vapid and shallow after everything that Carl just brought <laughs> to the table, but I'm just going to say that Donnie's like totally the boy I would have dated in high school. <laughs> Same here. Um, Same here. <laughs> you know, he's he or he's or wanted to date. He's dark. Uh -huh. He's mysterious. He's handsome. He's much smarter than everybody else, but doesn't seem to brag about it. Um, he's curious. He, you know, he wears those hoodies and he wears them well. I don't know. I mean, like again, <laughs> I can't add much other than I would have been crushing like very hard. <laughs> oh, same. Absolute same. I and, and actually, he reminds me of a 
better version of my high school boyfriend who was very much like Donnie, except for he had the leather jacket. So it was the leather jacket oh, and the hoodies. And oh yeah, and it was just it. like leather that smell. The and then he had the dark black hair. And he, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, no, and, and it's honestly I tend to overthink things. So just go ahead and, and assume that like I put way too much thought into this, like I do into like everything else. It was brilliant commentary, though. Everything. Yeah, you. <laughs> also, with your background, I mean, all of your guys' backgrounds, just on the on the on the the, the studious level from a psychological standpoint, it's mm-hmm. this. That's what makes this conversation all the more fascinating and and gives it depth, which is exciting. I mean, I'm, we're coming at it as you know the film fans and fanatics who want to work and play in that world, but to actually, you know, you this whole conversation is just, I think, broadening in so many ways. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's really cool to hear. Yeah. Instead of like, Carla, shut up. <laughs> no. It's definitely making me want to watch it again where I feel like we have so much that we have to be watching from a like research standpoint. It makes me want to turn it back on. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I keep watching it a million times because every time that I watch it, there's something new that I'm like, wait, I didn't catch it. Does that mean something? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Which is such a, that's a terribly painful it's an impossible thing to do as a fil- from a filmmaking standpoint. I mean, you ca- it's something actually you can't set out to do. You can only you can only create that by writing your personal experience because you know it's your life experience that you can interpret in all the different ways. And that here he adds that level of ethereal imagination. And there you go. It's yeah. a it's a cold hit forever. It feels like lightning. Yeah, and like, but that's what I love about the idea of uh, the death of the author because mm-hmm. you may have your reasons and your perception of why you're doing something, why you're putting this particular piece of art out there and what it means to you. And somebody else will come and dissect it in a whole different way that maybe that might not be what you meant. But I think if you're open as an artist, then it's like they're giving it extra life. They're giving it wings. They're taking it somewhere beyond where you foresaw it going and I think that that the mistake that a lot of creators make is um, demanding that people only see their vision it's like no this is not what I meant by it it's like cool bro I'm still gonna make that fan art because I like my interpretation and what are you gonna do about it yeah yeah Yeah. I think the same can even be said for your photography Carla because she's an amazing photographer and I think this the same thing can be said for that where you can look at your photograph and you can see something different in it that maybe that wasn't your intention, but I mean, like the ones that I have hanging up, I'll look at them and probably maybe see something that wasn't your intention. But I think that's what's so great about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I love that because I love when when people get back to me and say, Oh my gosh, did you mean for this to be that? I'm like, not at all, but I love your interpretation. Mm -hmm. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, like when I'm like, no, it's about my mom, you know, like it might be about my mom, (laughs) but it might also be about your cat. What do I know? And why would I take that away from you? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And Sasha. I mean, what can I add? I can. So on Carla's side, so with the psych, I just want to throw out, you know, like, yes, the mental health, the mental illness, all of that, the schizophrenia, you know, the auditory and visual hallucinations are actually quite rare together. That's not something that really happens. Um, I want to know, and I should have looked this up so bad on me, but the thing that comes out of his chest looks like the thing from what's that movie? The abyss. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were they the same time? Which one came first? Because they both came very first. first. Okay. And in fact, 
mm-hmm. the um, Richard, his last name, please? Kelly. Kelly, thank Kelly. you. Uh, he had that kind of in mind, and he kind of based his vision of that of the abyss. Oh, thank God. Because I was like, what is happening? <laughs> so I want to throw that out. And then, Lauren, you nailed it. Like, it's it's Donnie. Like, how cute is he? And he just, <laughs> like, I can't picture anybody but Jake Gyllenhaal mm-hmm. in that role. Like, he nailed it. His facial expressions, all of those like micro expressions he did when he was in like the trance like state that like look through the eyebrow thing that guys can do really well that I don't understand why only boys can do that. It's annoying. <laughs> no offense, Josh, but guys like you guys can nail that. Yeah, see, I don't get that. I can't. Everybody I can. You just you just bring your chin to your chest and look up as high as you can go. If you and can I just get like a double chin. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Three <laughs> chins. You can't. I don't know. <laughs> I immediately it got subconscious. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but, like he nailed it. The not blinking. All of his just those little facial twists that he did. He made that character. You know, I can't add any other big, in-depth, insightful things other than, like, that looking through the eyebrows. And he can rock a hoodie. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he really can. Apparently, they were uh, talking to, and I think originally had him interested, um, Jason Schwartzman for that role. He just done Rushmore. Yeah. Yeah. That was Drew, I think, Drew Barrymore's edition, and it didn't work out. But they just wouldn't have been nearly as wicked Mm -mm. or impactful. No. Yeah, he he nailed it. Agree. Yeah, and, and I why- agree with Josh. Like Donnie is the reason I continue to watch that movie over and over because that character is so magnetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'll just add personal standpoints here. Um, with the whole mental illness thing, I'll just take that from a personal standpoint, and I'll be open and honest. Um, and two of the panelists already know this, but for Josh and Lauren. Um, so I do have a mental illness. I have PTSD from a lot of trauma, especially in the past 10 years. Um, and then I also have bipolar two, which is very different from bipolar one. So you don't have hallucinations. I don't have any of that stuff. I've only had like a couple manic type things. Um, so coming at it from that viewpoint, I know Carla, you said that during the eighties, it was starting to get better. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because just from a personal standpoint, because um, I had horrible therapists. I had a very traumatic experience with a therapist who told me to tell her everything and I wish she wouldn't tell anyone. And then when I was done, she said, okay, I'm going to bring your mom in here. I'm going to tell her every single thing you just said, unless you tell her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's awful. So I have a hard time trusting therapists. So the therapist in this movie is like the dream therapist. The fact that she loves Donnie and she cares about Donnie and she wants Donnie to be better. And I have since had good therapists, but I had lots of bad ones and ones that misdiagnosed you and, you know, gave you the wrong medication and all this kind of stuff. Um, So from that standpoint, that's why I love this so much is having the person who has that mental illness, treating them like a human being and not like that defines them and treating them like, oh, it does, you know, you can't, you know, usually you'll see you can't do anything with this mental illness. You can't do anything or you're just crazy or you're just going to go off the rails. You're going to do something psychotic, which is so not true. 
Um, and I'm not saying there aren't people that aren't like that because there are, and I've actually met people that are like that. Um, but the fact that they treated him like he was so incredible and so amazing and so beautiful and that he deserved happiness in the end. And the fact that he found Gretchen and Gretchen supported him and loved him and, and didn't care about the fact that he had a mental illness and the fact that, you know, she liked the fact that he was weird and odd and different. And that's what she loved about him. And that's so rare to find because people do not usually like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even now it's hard to like, just saying that now, just saying that here, knowing that like, you know, I know Carla and Sasha know, but you know, the fact that Lauren and Josh didn't know that and saying mm -hmm. that is like in my head, I'm like, Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that erase, go back, go back, go yeah. back. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of thing where you still struggle with it. It's something that when you're diagnosed with that, you know, your whole life, you're going to have to deal with, do I tell this person that? Do I tell this person? How do I be open about it? Because I want to be open and I want other people to feel open about it and honest about it. That's one of the reasons for this podcast too, on top of everything else. But it's still terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying because I've had people that I've lost people in my life when they found out I've had people just totally just kind of just fade away. Um, so it is a very, very scary thing. I do think it's getting better. Like you said, with social media and having people to turn to and having experiences of people not turning away like you or Sasha, um, not backing away from me, that has been a plus, but there is still so much stigma to it. And there is still much, so much stigma to getting help. And it's so hard to get help. Thank you, Sasha. It's so hard to get help. It's so hard to find help out there. And it's so hard to afford help and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, so I just wanted to say that about the mental health aspect, because coming from a person who suffers from that, it's yeah. So Carly, thank you, you for sharing something? that. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Thank that. you. Thank you for saying yeah. that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. It's such an honor to talk about this movie with you. I mean, it's affected oh, you in such a profound way. You know, it's so personal. It's it's why it's what it's the most rewarding part for filmmakers. You know, to, the, mm -hmm. that you that something would. I'm sure if Richard Kelly had heard that, and I'm sure he mm -hmm. has, but for for it to impact anyone on that level, on that personal level. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you both for saying that. Thank you. Appreciate it, Carla. Yeah. So I just wanted to clarify that when I meant that things were getting better in the 80s i just meant as far as visibility yeah because certainly the treatment was still <laughs> very much in the crawling stages i mean even now it's not exactly anywhere near perfect and as far as donnie himself um the end when he, well, not the end but like towards the end where he shoots frank that had nothing to do with schizophrenia that was strictly a crime of passion that was yeah. and, and you know there, there's talk about keeping mental mentally ill people away from firearms when frankly mentally ill people are more likely to be at the receiving end of violence than the cause of violence so mm -hmm. th that's one big problem in uh, in perceptions of mental illness that needs to be beaten back soundly because there's absolutely no way that we can have a proper discussion on what mental illness does or doesn't inform if we're looking at things through um, an ableist lens. Thank you. Amen to all of that. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Okay. So let's move on. Just, um, actually, you know what, let's talk about Frank before we talk about the Darko family. Cause I want to talk about Frank here. What are your thoughts on Frank, Carla? Frank is so interesting because he is 
you know, when we see just Bunny Frank, and that's just kind of how he's presented to us from the beginning until towards the end. And yes, we know that um, that Elizabeth is dating. We don't. We hear the name kind of Frank, just kind of, but not. It doesn't really hit until towards the end in, in the Halloween party, where it's like, oh, they're the same dude. Um, but Frank is so scary and so intimidating because he is so otherworldly and he's just like in, in this giant suit and he has this weird mask and, and you know, it's, is he like that because he's from another planet? Is that what they look like on another planet? Are they just giant bunnies? I know that would be your biggest fear, Aaron. I am so sorry. No giant bunnies on any planet. Let's not go there. Um, but yeah, he's menacing and he's scary um, and then you get to the scene in the movie theater where Donnie asks him to take off his mask and he turns and you're like, oh my God, he's a kid. He's just like some dude. Oh, what, what, what what's going on with his eye? You know, his, he's like, what's his, his eyes kind of like explody and it's like bleeding and everything, but he's just a dude. So it starts to kind of demystify Frank in a sense, um, while also kind of heightening the level of horror, because it's it's one thing to be afraid of a giant bunny with a silver mask, because honestly, who wouldn't be? But now you're afraid of this regular guy. And why are we afraid of him? And it's not until you get towards the very end when he runs over Gretchen in the car and he steps out and then they pan up and you start to recognize the costume that you realize this is a human being. And if there's one thing that um, that comes up in art over and over again, is that the worst um, thing that uh, the, the thing that will cause the most harm in your life is going to be a fellow human being. Like, don't worry about aliens. Don't worry about getting eaten by a shark. It's going to be another human being who brings you the most harm. You know, they, I, I watched the little documentary about how he came to be cast um, James Duvall, I think his name is. And he just is such a, he just seems like a very approachable person, no matter what. And um, there was just like a kind of innocence to him in that teenage form where he steps out and he just really looks, you know, he, he looks contrite and scared and horrified by all of this, like, what were you guys doing out in the middle of the road? It's a perfectly legitimate question, I feel. You know, um, he swerved to avoid Mrs. Sparrow. So I I feel like, you know, if you're a teenager and you're speeding, and you've got beer in your car, and you're, you're on your way to a party with your girl, and you're about to hit an old woman, you swerve, you think, oh, thank God, and then you hit somebody else. I, I, I feel like his reaction was absolutely realistic. Um He's not a bad guy. It just happened to be wrong place, wrong time, or right place, right time, depending on how you're reading the timeline. Um, but Frank himself, it, it's th this meeting from two ends of a spectrum of terror and innocence. And yeah. And he's also very cute at the end. <laughs> he is cute too. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and Josh. It was obviously such a impactful uh, misdirect when he pulled the uh, pulled the mask off in the theater. Um, 
and for the twist of it all to be to be Donnie. So that that stuck with me in so many ways. I think weirdly, I, I, maybe it's just because we just bought the film and watched it again, um, and then watched the the documentary, seeing the actor and understanding his personality. It, it actually like deepened the character for me and, and made it all the more, all the more impactful um, and tragic in, in kind of a way. I don't know. I, I understand why he was cast and, and just loved, uh, loved that that actor insisted on staying in that costume and working with Donnie and how, how that relationship was cultivated on set. So I think as a, as a, I've definitely just been thinking about it more from a collaborative actor director standpoint. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, my first impression was I was terrified of this thing and curious about this thing and schizophrenic manifestation, you know, and, and, and uh, stereotyping, you know, what that might be from my limited understanding of, you know, um, of, uh, of, visual manifestations of, of the, the illness, which I know I knew nothing about. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, yeah, it, it was the gut punch that, that put the film over the edge in so many ways, finding out that it was a human being, that it was just a kid. And then learning who this person was just made it all the more tragic and enjoyable in a weird way. I, I kind of have, um, I, it all works ultimately, but now that we're dissecting it and thinking about it, there's sort of this like, it's almost hard to reconcile the Frank, the voice inside the bunny suit with the kid driving the red sports car, leaving the party. Um, you know, that voice that's like, wake up, Donnie, you know, that's so, so creepy. And so, um, yeah, just elicits this just sort of sense of wonder and supernatural dread. Um, and, you know, even, even you know, right before he takes the mask off, actually, um, and, and has that great line, like, why are you wearing that silly man suit mm-hmm. or stupid man suit, whatever he says, um, there is this sort of like... Um, he, he's kind of like an omniscient character, you know? He gives Donnie an exact countdown to when the world is going to end. He leads Donnie out of his bedroom in order to save his life because there's a tear in the space-time continuum. You know, he is this sort of like um, mystical knowing creature for three quarters of the movie. Um, and then, and then, yeah, like the first time, the only time I suppose that you hear him speak in his human teenage boy voice, it's a completely different experience um and i don't yeah i just i i thought that it was it was a bit of a shock i suppose maybe the first time i watched it but um but i but i but i love how how in the end yeah this this thing that we're following like a moth to a flame just ends up being some kid who happens to be the crux of um donnie being able to complete his mission so i thought the setup of frank as well as the payoff in retrospect, mm-hmm. this was really rewarding. Yeah. Sasha. I don't have a whole lot to add. Um, I mean, everybody really kind of covered it, but that initial, when you see that bunny face, that is a terrifying bunny. That is not your cute, fluffy Easter bunny. That is a nightmare bunny 
Um, and so it, that was not okay. Um, but I do like, like Lauren said, I do like the, the Frank, the rabbit voice. That's like this devil voice telling him what to do and how to do it. And then, like you said, when he's outside the car, like, why were you in the middle of the road? (laughs) They didn't mean to like, you know, it's just that desperate kid. My mom's going to kill me. Right. Mom's going to be pissed. I'm going to lose my license. You know, it's just kind of that very different characters. And Mm -hmm. so I I appreciate that. But I just want to point out how terrifying that rabbit mask is. And in the final sequence, when they show his art and like the evolution of it. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I got. Well, you know, I, I, um, you I have love a fear rabbits. of bunnies. I do. I have a legitimate fear of bunnies. I am terrified. That's the only animal that terrifies me. Um, and so they're terrifying no matter what. I mean, even those cute little fluffy ones, they're up to no good. Seriously, look in a bunny's eyes and you will, you will see. <laughs> you will see the menace in there. The rah. It's in there. It's in there. I'm telling you. You must have hated us. Jordan Peele's movie, Us. <laughs> I love Us, but that with the that rabbits was so, opening. oh my gosh. Yeah, that was <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> yeah, because Carla's like, how can you like a movie so much that has a bunny prominent like that? And one of the artists has bunny in their name. Aaron, you're a contradiction. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, really the way you could look at it is Frank designed this suit that really shows you the true nature of a bunny. (laughs) That's what he was doing. (laughs) I love the reactions to that. A, you know, someday maybe everybody will discover the truth. (laughs) I'm just trying to spit up my wine right now. I know. I know how ridiculous it sounds. I do know. I do know. But I actually hurt myself face palming. Like that was bad. <laughs> that hurt. Um, yeah, I don't really have much else to add either. I except for I just agree with what everybody said. Um, and I think I think the performance is one that really doesn't get talked about a lot because there's a lot he has to do there. Where, yes, you've got the voice manipulation, but he still has to do a lot where he's playing two different characters, really. He's not just playing the real life Frank. He's playing this other Frank, um, Donnie's version of Frank, the future Frank. Um, And so he has to play many different levels. And then with the fact that he basically knows what was going to happen, he knows what happened. And dealing with that and dealing with the consequences of that and dealing with the fact that Okay, his life was saved, but Donnie's life is still taken. So is he responsible for that? Does he bear any responsibility for that? Or, you know, it's this weird thing. You can see it all in the actor's face. Like I've said, the eyes, the eyes, the eyes. If I can't see the character in the eyes, I don't believe the performance. And you can see it all there. Just little subtle movements he does. Like I've mentioned before, when he touches his eye. But just also the crying was so real. It wasn't like this over-the-top dramatic you know, cry. It was this real, real release. Um, And I know Richard Kelly said in one of the commentaries that when you hear Frank honk the horn when he's driving by, that he's doing that to say to Donnie, wake up, we did this, we did this, get out of bed, we've saved the world. Um, Yeah, and that was one of the things he thought, yeah. And then, of course, Donnie doesn't do that. So also dealing with that. So it's just, it's, yeah, 
It's a really, really interesting character. Okay, so let's move on to the Darko family. So, Carla, your thoughts on the Darko family? The Darko family is so interesting. Uh, you know, starting with, with the father and the mother, you, you have these two conservative suburban parents in the 80s. And it, what's interesting there is that, you know, they have a daughter who is... Um, the first thing the first thing you really hear out of her is I'm voting I'm voting Dukakis. It's like, oh well, here we go. Here goes another family dinner with a fight. And um and it just kind of feels kind of like a family ties redux where you have, you know, but like flip because the the parents were the hippies and the son was the young Republican and then here you have it flipped. Um so it's just like the a typical family dynamic of the younger generation um confronting their own ideals and how they square with their parents and their ideals. You have the significantly younger little sister who is just very innocent and just kind of taking, taking it all in. Um, uh, the interactions between Elizabeth and Donnie, in addition to the fact that you get, you know, double Gyllenhaal impact, 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 it's just really great because it's just like such a genuine family interaction where they're like teasing each other and calling each other names and at the same time kind of laughing together but at each other. And that's priceless. That's not something that you can really get um, outside of a real family table. And uh, But I, I think that the character that most stuck with me was the mom. Because I think, you know, and I think especially now, because I didn't watch this movie until after I became a mother. I think if I had watched it as a teenager, Elizabeth would have resonated uh, resonated more with me. Um, because she's kind of like the cool that I would have wanted to be. And she seems so interesting. And it's like, oh, and she's going to Harvard. So she's smart on top of everything else. Oh, what a cool girl. But now as a mom, it's like, okay, I, I get more how she's you know she's being pulled in all kinds of directions because all of her kids have needs of some kind or another um elizabeth still needs guidance because she's still her her daughter and she's going up to college she's taken apparently like a gap year and she's going through a lot herself she has samantha who is this little kid doing sparkle motion and um i for one never questioned their commitment to sparkle motion i just want that known i want it on the record <laughs> sparkle motion was everything to them i know this in my heart <laughs> they lifted and breathed it um but yeah samantha is like this tiny little kid and she's um being brought up with a lot of turmoil around her she's about to lose her big sister to college her big brother is going through a lot emotionally and mentally and that has a big impact on a child of this age um, and she also has her own stuff to contend with and her own problems and, you know, her own dreams and goals. Um, her relationship with her husband, I thought was really lovely because they they mm -hmm. lean on each other so well. It's even like this physical connection where they're constantly physically leaning on each other. And it's beautiful. I think it's a really beautiful depiction of of marriage and of motherhood. And certainly, like we've said about her and Donnie, she loves her son. And all she wants, it's, it's you know, th there's this constant, um, I think, in motherhood with your child when they get to the teenage years, whether your child is neurotypical or not, 
your child becomes somebody that you don't necessarily recognize because they are growing up, they're finding their own way in the world. And um, it's especially true when your child is having a harder time because of of things beyond hormones and beyond, you know, like the influence of oh, MTV or whatever the case may be in your decade. Um, and she just loves him. She just wants what's best for him. She wants him to be happy and to be as well adjusted, adjusted as he can be. Um, and even when he's, you know, kicking her out of his room and calling her names, it was really sweet to me that he, he kicks her out of his room. He calls her the B word. She's in the hallway like, oh, no, he didn't. And he's in, in his room like, did she hear me? I hope she didn't hear me. Mommy, I didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. Like, you can see that on his face. Like, all of it's playing out. Like, I didn't mean it, Mom. I really do love you. And it's it's just, um, like, I'm thinking tierno, but it's tender. It's like, what's the word in English? It's so similar, duh. Um, it's such a tender thing between them. This There is still so much love there. Um, because even when your kids are going through the worst of their teenage and post-adolescent years, if you've done a good job as a parent, there is still a tie. There's still something there. Um, and so I, I just, I love the family and I really think that a lot of my love for them comes from the interactions with the mom. And by the way, Mary McDonald's amazing and she was in Battlestar Galactica and she brought that same energy, the same loving um, steeliness to that role. But like, okay, she's great. Bye. (laughs) I love you, Carla (laughs) and Josh. (laughs) Yeah, that was beautiful. I mean, so well articulated. For me, it's just real. It was so real. They're... The humanity, despite the politics, it it reminded me of my family, how loud we are, how physical we are, loving, um, the the, the swearing. I mean, it was it was very um, there was no way he wasn't influenced Richard Kelly by Toby Hooper's Poltergeist, and Craig T. Nelson Mm -hmm. and that family dynamic um, or, you know, which obviously produced by Spielberg and the E.T., you know, um, the, the the hurling insults across the table sort of, you know, chaotic, um, very human, very, I don't know, quote unquote, re- relatable dynamic that certainly I was used to as a kid. So that's what I appreciate about it and made it hit all the harder rather than making them archetypes, you know, conservative dad, alcoholic mom or absent mom or despondent mom and, you know, obnoxious little kid. They all had something else going on. And that's what made the ending with dad holding Samantha. Oh my God, crying his eyes out about his son. So a a masculine, you know, Republican for all intents and purposes, father mourning his kid, but one who'd been jokey and jokey in the way that my dad is with the, you know, leaf blower and, you know, all that sort of, um, those sorts of dynamics, but how, um, uh, how is Gretchen waved, to, is Gretchen Gretchen's mm-hmm. the girlfriend waved mm-hmm. to the mother and that moment and just I mean those smaller moments pay off because Richard Kelly cultivated and clearly allowed for that humanity to come across and that's that's why that's why it's just another another layer of love for the film is that the family was so real and they were in their own way you know against the world as kind of right like that's it was the politics of the school the standoff with Kitty 
about the trip. And I mean, they were all kind of they're marching to the beat their own drum in the safe, but like within the safe bubble, they were a bubble within the bubble, the perfect bubble of the eighties bubble and a safe one at that. It felt like you could truly be safely yourself in that house, despite what was going on with Donnie. And it reminded me a lot of what, you know, how, how I grew up, my mom cultivated a household where it was, you can, you can do, you can truly be yourself within these walls and go off the rails in this house. If you want to, you're safe to do that here. But as soon as you walk out that door, you are, you know, please and thank you and minding your manners and certainly not drawing on any walls. And I think it was the safety within, within being able to do that or not being, you know, hurled across the room for drawing on a wall. If we ever did do that, 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 um, you know, uh, that I think formed myself and my siblings and why I, I love the, those characters so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lauren. Yeah, I think the bubble within a bubble thing is very, very astute. And I, and, you know, they're all, they're all, you know, so idiosyncratic, you, you know, mm-hmm. they are like, the, like, you know, we were talking about they're the eighties, somewhat conservative, you know, family with the nice house and the picket fence and the three kids and the smart daughter and the, popular little daughter and whatever, but they're all, but they're, they all have such uh, a clever strangeness about them. And, um, and you can kind of see where Donnie gets his streak from. And what's so cool is I think it comes from his mom. You know, I think that when Kitty does come to talk about uh, Cunningham, um, Patrick Swayze's character, um, and, and the mother is just like, Oh, you mean I read something about Kitty Porn Dungeon? You know, like she's 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 standing up to her in the way that Donnie did against him during the you know in the auditorium, but doing it in a way where she she's testing the limits and the boundaries of 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 her how far she can go and how far she can take it within you know the strata the suburban mom strata in which she exists in the same way that Donnie is kind of, you know, you know, while also, while struggling with the mental illness, I think that he, he is so intelligent and he knows he's like, he's, he's, he's pressing it. He's pressing the buttons. He's pushing the boundaries. He's asking the questions. And um, you can kind of just see that, Mm. that that's something that's encouraged in Mm. in that family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Sasha. Uh, Ditto. I want to piggyback on the, you know, the parents and when they have to go into the principal or the Dean's office, when Donnie gets in trouble with Kitty and the parents are like trying to play straight, but they're like, all right. You know, and then there's the scene where the sister's on the phone and she's like, yeah, he told her to shove it up her ass and my parents bought him all this new crap like he wasn't even in trouble everybody supported him because they know so in addition to everything everybody else said yeah so well said so good yeah those scenes are great examples We're, yeah even in re-watching the sopranos and looking at like when the sopranos are dealing with their kid you know going through what they're going through in school there's this like save the cat congruency with you know, uh, with parents who are protective of their kids, but see, you know, identify themselves in their kids, the inability mm-hmm. to withhold the laugh that that instantly humanizes everyone. It's such a mm-hmm. it's a great device. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It must suck being Kitty Farmer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She, miserable. Right. she must be miserable. I know. Absolutely miserable. He was the first Karen. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
Yep, that's Beth Grant was playing Karens long before Karens were Karens. She is the yep. originator. The original uh, Karen. So true. Kitty Cunningham. Kitty Karen. Kitty Karen Cunningham. <laughs> that's so true. Uh, well, I grew up with a mom who was very much like this mom. I am, except for not conservative at all, but I grew up with a mom who very much was like encouraged you to embrace your artistic side. She was kind of like a surrogate mom to all our friends because we hung out with such weird and different people. And I mean, I just remember we would have friends over both male and female and they'd stay the night and would wake up and she'd be in the kitchen having like these in-depth conversations with our friends and just embracing them. And, you know, we hung out with a lot of goth kids too. So it was a lot of, you know, kids that weren't embraced at all. And so I was very, very blessed that way um, to grow up with that. At, you know, it just, it really makes a difference because, you know, it makes you feel like you can be whatever you want to be and you can be yourself and it's okay to be yourself and I'm going to love you no matter what. And I'm going to support you no matter what. Like I said, my mom listens to almost every episode we do of this show. She's read everything I've ever written. She's, you know, gone to every play. She's gone to everything like that. She's very supportive. Well, she won't listen to the horror ones. I will say that because she doesn't like horror, but she has listened to every single episode and she gives me feedback and notes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it's so nice to have that. Um, so I loved seeing that in here. And I loved, um, like it's been said, that they were fully fleshed out real people. They weren't caricatures. They were real people and had lots of dimension going on. And there's um, a deleted scene between Donnie and his father where his father, and I wish I could remember the exact quote from it, but his father is basically telling Donnie, you know, I love you no matter what, and I'm fine with you having a mental illness, and I love you, and I embrace you, and I'm proud to be your father. It's kind of like they're on that lines, and it's just such a beautiful, beautiful scene, and, you know, too often I think you would have had these parents be that caricature of, like, you know, not a lot of depth, and they're just kind of in the background, and they don't mean anything, and all that stuff, but it was so nice to see them, and so nice to see them stand up for Donnie, and really, really stand up for him, you know, when it came to a lot of things with Kitty and everything like that. It's pretty, pretty great and wonderful. And the whole scene where they're talking about the Graham Greene book and wanting to ban that book and just their looks on their faces, like, you know, you, mm -hmm. do you even know what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, they're just, they're so awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay, well, let's move on to Gretchen, Carla. What are your thoughts on Gretchen? The kind of girlfriend girl type in these movies whether it, you're talking about like like Sasha said like a John Hughes type of movie or just any kind of movie where a dude has a girlfriend um, she's not like a little wallflower she's not like quiet like in the corner like ah, come save me she has a lot more going on to her she has her own life um, she quickly develops a rapport with Donnie and just very i don't know ill-advisedly just lays out her whole life story like oh yeah we're kind of in witness protection and my name is not actually gretchen ross but i like it and yeah my stepdad stabbed my mom four times in the chest like okay honestly if your stepdad is out on the lamb maybe don't overshare so much that's just my professional opinion as somebody who has um very professionally studied all uh all of the seasons of criminal minds and um, 
I feel is this your PhD in criminal minds? My PhD in criminal minds, indeed. Yes, thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you for acknowledging that, Sasha. I appreciate. I, got I didn't you. want to say the title, but I'm glad that you did because that then I didn't have to say it. I would have implied it heavily, but um, <laughs> yes, my my very important knowledge in criminal minds would have dissuaded her from saying that. Anyway, so Gretchen is such an interesting person because she doesn't necessarily need Donnie. It's not a thing of where she needs a boyfriend. She needs this dude. It's like he happened to be walking by when she was being harassed by these guys. And it just happened to be that he's somebody that she could talk to and feel like she could open up to and just gelled with pretty quickly. Um, But there was no sense that she needed the rescue. She just saw an available life raft and she jumped on it as a smart kid would. Um, And throughout the, the movie, like, yes, her mother goes missing and she goes to Donnie's because the police told her to go somewhere where she felt safe. And that's not so much damsel in distress as it is somebody making a smart decision and going to the place where she felt safe. Nothing more to it than that. And I appreciate that, um, that Richard Kelly, the way that Gretchen was written, she's not a simpering um, baby girl who is looking to the big man for help. She's part of the crew. She's part of Donnie's life in the same way that his guy friends are that his parents are she is she's more than just a sketch of a of a woman um and of course it's like all the more tragic than when she when she dies because uh you know like i i feel like i certainly i know that i certainly talk a lot about killing off women for man pain and to propel a story forward and how much i hate that um, I don't know that she needed to die, but she did. So that's where we are. Um, and that's part of why it's like, it's part of what makes his sacrifice later on even more worth it because you become invested in Gretchen as a fully fleshed human, not just as a sketch of the girlfriend. Um, and, you know, in, in addition to to the great writing and directing, it's, definitely um the actor um jenna malone she's she really made this character so three-dimensional um in a way that i think uh i'm not gonna say that like nobody else could have done it this way because i simply don't know i don't know enough about her and her acting to really say one way or the other but i think she definitely brought a lot to it she's Mm -hmm. um an integral part of what what made the the romance that part of the love story works so well yeah totally totally josh well just as lauren said subjectively before about donnie you know he was he was cute i mean i i certainly if, if in high school i knew i knew a girl who was um well first of all who who i could have like intercepted in some harassment even though i was a run to probably never did or or would have because i was so scared um but I, I would have definitely been intrigued by her in just in her intelligence and her depth and also openness. I, you know, any, anyone just kind of, there's something so attractive about that confidence uh, to me for someone to just kind of, you know, open up and it's not in some kind of um, it's not self-serving in any way. It's, it's just, 
genuine and that, and that's what's so wonderful and obviously as you said just so tragic about her demise and ultimately you know wonderful about her the the reveal that perhaps there was no demise um so yeah i think jenna malone was was so great she's she's such a deeply just such a, a deeply uh human isn't the right word but she's got such a humanity to her to all of the performances that she's done and what, you know, what limited filmography I can sort of think of. So. I agree. I agree. Lauren. Um, what I really appreciate about, about Gretchen is that just in terms of like, like you said, you know, the way that Richard Kelly wrote her and the, and the performances is she's in terms of her femininity, there's like a real strength to her and a real power to her but also this sense of like poeticism that she brings to the character and, and in the way that she sees the world or she wants to see the world. So those two sort of aspects of her as, as a woman, I really appreciate. And I even more so appreciate the fact that she's not drawn as this like manic pixie dream girl, which of the time was this like late nineties, early aughts, like, you know, I'm this, well, everyone knows what, what a Manic Pixie Dream Girl is at this point, but um, there's something about Gretchen that is so grounded. And um, the the example that just keeps coming to mind is when she's talking to Donnie about the, the way that she wants their first kiss to be, um, where she wants to be reminded of how beautiful the world can be. But so there's something kind of like, you know, uh, like woo woo about that in a way, but at the same time, this is a girl who knows what she wants. She knows that she, you know, she knows how she wants things to go down. She knows she doesn't want it to go down when some creepy guys watching them in the woods. Um, and also this, like, you know, um, I guess the class projects that they do um, about wanting babies to see sort of these like beautiful images um, when they when they go to sleep at night. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just, I, I think I, I really appreciate the sort of strength and softness and softness that she, that she embodies. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, 100%. Sasha? Nobody stole mine. Ooh! <laughs> I get an original. I'm so Sorry. happy. I know. Um, <laughs> so for me, I think that Gretchen has this darkness in her life with, you know, the stepdad, the mom, the mom disappearing, like she's got this certain amount of darkness. So she's attracted to the darkness and Donnie, but she's the light for him. So I think they give that cohesive yin and yang. They're like the kindred spirits in a way, because again, she's comes out of this darkness, but she's got that light. And like Lauren said, you know, with the images for the babies and wanting Everything for her has to be about beauty. She wants the beauty. She wants the joy. Like, that's what she's looking for. And then Donnie is kind of the opposite because he's just this dark character. And so I think they play off of each other really nice with that dark light combo. Completely agree with that. Yeah, and I think uh, a lesser writer would have written her as the pixie dream girl or would have written her even shallower than that. Because this story is Donnie's story, so it would have been so easy to forget about the woman and be like, oh, she's just kind of there to make him feel. But she doesn't need any kind of character. She doesn't need any development. She's just there for, for him um, and just to serve his needs. And that's what I appreciate is they give her depth where she's not 
just, you know, fawning all over him. Um, and she's a real person and she has real struggles and she's dealing with this horrific thing personally with her family. And so she is this fully fleshed out character and too often women aren't fully fleshed out. You know, it's just very rare or they fit into some kind of stereotype. And with me, with her, with her dying, you know, with the whole, you know, killing women for man pain, that's something that we've talked about endlessly. And you mentioned Carla, because it does get really old and tired. But for this one, for it, it kind of works for me where I don't feel that same kind of, oh, why did you have to kill her? You're just killing her to make Donnie do this. And yes, it is used as a motivation for him. But at the same time, I don't know, I think, I think there was such tragedy in there where it was kind of playing back to her whole thing about talking about tragedy and talking about finding a moment to get out of tragedy. And so here was her tragic moment. And here was Donnie's chance to give her beauty back and to give her a beautiful life back and where she wouldn't have to suffer from tragedy anymore. And she could have this beautiful moment. And, you know, we'll talk about the end coming up, but I, I don't think she remembers him. I don't honestly think she remembers him. I don't know if people disagree with that. And so I think that was actually part of, I don't know if Donnie did that on purpose, but I think that was part of it was that he didn't want her to have any kind of horrific memory or blame herself at all, you know, because I think she would have blamed herself. So, yeah, I just really appreciate Gretchen. And Gretchen won our poll of favorite characters other than Donnie, too, so... Okay, so I'm going to combine Kitty and Jim Cunningham because I think they actually go together. So your thoughts on them, Carla? I think, you know, there, there's such a part of the whole uh, placement of this movie in suburban USA um, because Kitty is kind of the essence of suburban USA women, uh, at least as on the whole with the idea of the, pur- the puritanical idea of purity juxtaposed with the obsession with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, and, you know, I just want to bring up the fact that not enough people give credit to Beth Grant for her per- her performance in this role. She is amazing. She's amazing in general, but yeah. she really brings something special to Kitty Farmer because I think it really takes somebody with a lot of restraint and a lot of of savvy to play this role in a way that isn't just flat out cartoonish. And yes, in a, and she's certainly like a caricature of the suburban, you know, middle-class PTA mom, but it's done in a kind of subversive way. And I love that about her. And, uh, but she's also somebody who brings about a lot of Donnie's inner turmoil. Um, his fixation with things being more complicated than just A or B completely brushes up against her, very uh, just fear or love interpretation of the world as informed by Jim Cunningham and his teachings. And, you know, he brings up that it's more complicated than that. She refuses to see that. And it's just a truth that a lot of the time um, people who are comfortable refuse to see beyond a dichotomy of some kind or another. And she's certainly comfortable and she certainly doesn't want to see outside of that because it doesn't benefit her in any, in any way. Um, she doesn't have the struggles that maybe Donnie does or that Sharita does or that, you know, even Rose does because, you know, as far as she's concerned, she has it all. And it, it's kind of like the whole um, evangelical prosperity gospel thing where 
if you just, you know, surrender to God, good things will happen to you and the the money will keep flowing. And it, similarly, Jim Cunningham brings this kind of quote unquote gospel where it's if you surrender your fear, love will flow. And how does love flow in suburban U.S. by the promise of more prosperity? Um, so like the only thing holding you back from being more successful and prosperous is your fear and your negative emotions. And so you're never really allowed to feel in depth anything. You're only allowed to feel uh, the positive things and the happy things. And, and if you see anything outside of that, no, 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 we can't hear you. You don't belong here. And that's what they do to Donnie. Um, and frankly, it's no surprise that he ends up being, uh, you know, in a, a child sex, uh, what do they call it? Like a dungeon? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's precisely this kind of um, person who goes unnoticed. You know, it's it's always like, oh, but he was so nice to me. Like never investigated any any further because... Well, he's an upstanding white guy. Why do we need to look any further than that? Why do we? What do we need to investigate beyond that? And I think the most telling thing with Jim is that in his video, there's that kid who kind of shouts like, "I'm not afraid anymore!" Clearly terrified. Like his face says something completely different than his mouth. And I think that that right there, like, was the the first real introduction to what Jim Cunningham was as that child. Like, ah, get me out of here. Um, and the, the you know, in 2016, there was much made up of the 43% of white women who voted for you-know-who. And um, that's part of all of this. This is part of that whole same demographic that will go to bat for a child molester mm-hmm. and will throw away everything. Well, even, you know, she's not going to her daughter's a star search competition because she has to be there for Jim. And that that's, you know, the, the intertwining of Jim and Kitty. And I'm glad that you brought them up together because like, there's, you know, there's a direct line between them to Donnie and his uh, revelation of there being so much more than that. He's already mm-hmm. smart, but that kind of awakens him even further. Like these two can't possibly be right. Like, no, 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 no. Clearly, there's something off here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Josh? Oh, it's just so fun to watch Beth Grant um, go from, like, comfort zone, a reverent performance, to gradually, uh, like, an unrattled, exposed nerve. And her trying to hold it together and, and like, hold that perfection together, like Spider-Man trying to hold two trams together as they're, you know, fracturing. Mm-hmm. Um was well, so watching her do that just as, as as an actor was just so fun, and yeah, as you were mentioning, you know, the relationship of the of the Karens who came to bat for you know who it reminds me of like, you know, prison letters or something. It's you know this sexualization or this admiration of the imperfect for some reason, as if you, I don't know in some weird way you're like you're you're um, I don't know. Uh, it's it's the ultimate expression of love or or expression of your religious outlook or or, or I don't know in in adoration of some uh, pedestal character or character worth pedestaling in your in your environment who represents something for you that that perfection for you I'll stand by them no matter what martyr for no matter what so it was it was brilliant to watch and. Um, I mean, you know, what brilliant 
inspired casting that Patrick Swayze, like with the eighties nostalgia of it all and the, um, the shit eating grin, um, uh, 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 fake kind of Tony Robbins of it all and the dark with the dark reveal. I mean like chef's kiss, mm-hmm. perfect writing, perfect casting all the way. And what it was just, just a, just a fun look. I actually got to direct Beth Grant in a short film years ago and thinking of her with her personality background. Um, and it followed up and actually got to interview her, which was wonderful, but thinking about her and her relationship to like, Patrick Swayze on set and knowing what kind of person she is, is like warm and loving as you could possibly imagine she is. And um, I just deepen that experience for me, just as someone who had the, that, that wonderful experience. So yeah, I, I loved that. What a great cross pollination of actors. Mm-hmm. I just got my filmmaker head really excited, you know, just to, especially revisiting it years later. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's incredible. She's so incredible. Yeah. Lauren. Yeah. Yeah, I mean again ditto on on all all the fronts but um th- and there are so many instances in this movie where Kitty operates in direct opposition to the doctrine that she is just like inhaling by the second mm-hmm. from Jim Cunningham, which I just find so interesting. She's just like a walking annoying contradiction where she's like constantly embodying fear Mm -hmm. and turning away from love. And I think that one of the really um, telling scenes, which is such a small moment, but that always stuck with me was when she is uh, driving down the street and Donnie and his friends are, are, are shooting bottles and whatever. And she almost hits Roberta Sparrow and she gets out of the car and you hear her going, Mrs. Sparrow, like get out of the road. Like she's so pissed at this lady who's like 101 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, she's so inconvenienced and so, and I mean, just so those little touches um, are so great and, and, and so telling. Uh, and I think that similarly with, with Cunningham, with Swayze's character, I thought that, that, again, the moment at the end um, with Mad World playing, um, you see his private truth, which is he knows he's a monster and he's fucking terrified. And and a fake. And a fake and a phony. And he is, again, on the opposite side of of the love spectrum. Um, So I think those, again, they're, they're two very, very small, seemingly insignificant moments, but I think in terms of what those characters are intended to preach, um, he, you know, Kelly just in such a deft way showed, showed, showed exactly what Donnie's trying to say to them, which is that there is no black and white, you know, look at, look mm-hmm. at the mirror, look in the mirror. And yeah. It's, yeah. And both just great, great performances. Yes. Yes. They both, both are. Yeah. Yeah. Sasha. So I've got two big things with this. The first one is with the scene with Donnie and Kitty with the fear and love. He's like, it doesn't work that way. And she's like, it's fear or love. Otherwise you get a zero for the day. And the teacher in me is mortified at that and horrified. And just like, I just want to grab her and be like, that's not how you fucking teach. This is not how you do things. So there's that. So Um, many teachers like that, by the way, that have threatened the, the zero for, for showing your depth and uh, your intelligence. As a teacher, the zero is the biggest thing that makes me insane. 
Like, the only reason you get a zero is if you don't show up. Like, you don't show up, I can't yeah. give you anything. How disgust, how disgracefully, yeah. Leaving no room me... for children to think for themselves. Right. Yeah. It makes me batty. Um, so, watching this now, with the knowledge and the experiences I have compared to back when, the whole cult feel of it is very different, and especially... I, Aaron knows this, um, but I, thanks to the uh, glorious QAnon cult, I have lost a family member um, in a epic screaming match, not my proudest moment kind of way. Um, it's been, oh, it's been almost six months since I've spoken to them at all. And I just can't, I can't have them. But that, watching how... Jim was doing things and how Kitty was just drinking the Kool-Aid. Like she was full on rolling around in it like catnip and you know it was coloring her hair, it was her eye shot like everything was the Kool-Aid. She drank it. Mm-hmm. You know and just seeing that I've got a different perspective just because of my personal experience with it where I watched it and it it was like a punch to the gut watching mm-hmm. that interaction and especially the fact that what ultimately comes out about Jim is the kitty porn ring. You know, it's like, are you, this is their whole foundation was like the save the children where you're not actually, you're not helping the right cause people, you know? So it was very weird for me on a personal level to see that interaction. Um, But it was just very Jim Jones, David Koresh, like he, and like that, you know, the, the Robins, it's that charismatic, person who comes out and everybody just here I'll drink all of your Kool-Aid I'll take all of your pills what do you want me to do you want me to go buy the Adidas and the purple sheets I'm in cyanide caps got it (laughs) like whatever you want because they're just so hooked um and I agree those performances were excellent they were so good in such a bad creepy way that you really felt you know, I'm watching it and I'm going, I love Patrick Swayze and I really don't like him right now. Like, he makes me feel gross. Like, that I need to take a shower to get it off me gross. Yeah, and the other thing is, you've got Kitty doing this sparkle motion thing, which is a very sexualized dance of these young girls. And she's supposed to be this, you know, virtue signaling, you know, all over the place. And here she is doing this very sexual dance with these young, young, young children and it's so disgusting because it's like okay yes i'm all about purity and everything and yes we've got it you know you can't curse you can't do that you can't do this but yet i'm going to sexualize these children including her own children um you know because she says her daughter is there too so you've already got that and then she wants she's so quick to defend jim cunningham when it comes out instead of being like horrified and being like okay i've got to reflect on this instead she's like he couldn't possibly do this this couldn't possibly be true because if she confronts that she has to look at herself too and she has to look at the role she played and she has to look at the fact that she brought this predator into this school and she brought this predator in amongst these people and legitimized him so she's going to sit there and not support him 
then that means that she has to confront herself too. So instead, if she supports him, then she can still live in that denial and lying and lying to herself and lying about who he is and what she did and the role she played in it. So it's a very, very interesting character. And her performance, like we've already said, I mean, she's just, she's so, so good. And she's just such an incredible, incredible actress anyway. I mean, she brings subtlety and depth and level to characters that, even when they're not written that way, she still brings that depth in there. And she's just, she's just amazing. And Patrick Swayze was so good in this role. And I think it says something about his character and him as an actor that he was willing to play a character like this and be okay with this. Um, you know, I think that says a lot about him as an actor because yeah, he's so, so good. Yeah. Carla, did you want to add something on there? You guys want to say something? Just really quickly that, what Sasha was saying about the, the cult mentality it's and what you were saying about her refusing to acknowledge the truth. It's exactly appropriate, not only for that time, but also for this time as we're seeing, you know, mm -hmm. exit counselors for these QAnon people trying to, to be like, listen, you've been tricked and trying to kind of guide them out of it. But that's, first of all, you have to be open to the idea even Mm -hmm. And would Kitty have been open to the idea of her being part of a cult kind of thing? Who knows? But you have to be open to it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. It, and she yeah. seems to already be in so much pain as a person that mm -hmm. that opening up that possibility is probably just too much for her to bear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely, definitely agree with that. And, and I think, you know, Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just because, and if the girls didn't win their dance competition in Los Angeles, I don't, I don't know. She's just going to throw herself off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yep. She'll bro She'll blame Rose. She would have blamed Rose. Oh, it would have been Rose's fault sure. because she was the Karen. Yeah. 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 And it reminds me of, um, I don't know if anyone else has watched the Heavens. I'm assuming you have, Sasha, the Heavens Gate documentary on HBO. Um, but what's so interesting about that documentary is they interview people that still believe all that same stuff and actually feel guilty for not having committed suicide. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's amazing how long that lasts, the effects of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I do think I do think with with now with QAnon and everything and, and everybody who, um, you know, is part of the insurrection and everything like that, I think a lot of the reason people don't want to change from there is. Number one, it also goes to white supremacy, of course. Um, but also, I think it's because they don't want to look at the fact that if they made this mistake, they caused pain. They helped cause the pain in this country. They helped cause mm -hmm. the fear. Yeah. So I, I think that's a lot of it is that people don't like to look inner inward. So, yeah, don't like that. Kool-Aid is pretty powerful, potent stuff. And denial mm -hmm. is way more comfortable. Exactly. It's a nice, yeah. cozy little cocoon that you don't have to acknowledge anything. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And especially white people like to do that a lot more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. so. Yep. Yep. Totally. Okay. Well, I wanted to touch really quickly on um, Charita. And um, I'm sorry. I mispronounced that. I'm sorry. Um, Carla, I want to get your thoughts. Well, you pronounce Carla just fine. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sharita, like I said earlier, she's similar to Donnie in that she's also isolated and vulnerable. But where Donnie's vulnerability is an internal thing, hers is more external. Um, she's overweight. She has an accent. And she is other. 
she's labeled as weird physically Donnie's friends taught taunt her in very racist ways and um you know Donnie tells them to to back off and later on he's comforting her just out of nowhere which by the way like honestly if some dude came up to me and like grabbed my earmuffs and I was like everything's gonna be okay hell yeah I would have run to Sharita you run for the hills I don't know what this guy is doing and then he wears her earmuffs honestly again my PhD in criminal minds coming in here that's just absolute unsub territory like you know call Agent Morgan's stat even though he doesn't work there anymore that's not the point we're not talking about um, injustices <laughs> about criminal minds here but yeah so Sharita is just so interesting because she is part of the the more innocent group of people in this movie along with Samantha um, who is just you know like an untainted kind of person. Um, and like I do anytime that I see a minority in an otherwise very white cast, I do wonder about the reasoning for her being there. Um, because there are some things that stick out to me that made me uncomfortable. I don't know if they were intentional in a way that I can't divine or what the thing was. But, you know, after the talent show, she goes to sit at the foot of the the bronze statue of the mascot mm-hmm. of the school. The, the school mascot is called the mongrel and it's a dog with like a human's body. And a mongrel has many different definitions, you know, like a, 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 um particularly an animal of mixed breeding, but you know, like that's part of the offensive ones is a person of mixed race. And it, it just made me really uncomfortable that Sharita is sitting at, at the foot of the mongrel statue a couple of times in the movie, I was like, what is the point of that? Like, please tell me that it's something innocuous so that I don't have to be like, oh God, this movie. Um, and then also, like, the one other time that you see anything um, talking about uh, an Asian person is when you're looking at the cards that Kitty Farmer is talking about when you have to, like, decide whether something is guided by fear or love. And the line says, Ling Ling finds a wallet. And the depiction of Ling Ling is a non-white person with, with you know, sticky-outy teeth, which is just straight up pulled from one of those awful caricatures of Asian people. That made me very uncomfortable. And that's uh, something that I would want to question Richard Kelly on. Like, why was this part of it? Why was that something that you went to? Um, was there a reason for it? Could you have maybe not done that? Um but, you know, because particularly I think when we look at, at older movies and we think about, well, you know, that's just how things were at the time. But, like, why were things like that? Why did you choose that? Um, the one black character is the janitor. Why? Why, 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 why? Um, but as far as Sharita, she's fascinating because you know so little about her, which is also very sad that you know so little about her and she's so important. She's also, in the ending montage, the only character who, when she wakes up, has a smile on her mm-hmm. face. And if we're going by the theory that Donnie has in some way affected all of these people who are waking up, maybe with some trace memory from that other timeline, she's the one who got comforted by Donnie. And maybe she'll carry that forward and feel like, you know what, somewhere out there is somebody who has my back and who believes that things will get better for me. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And um, 
I really appreciated seeing a chubby non-white person having that comfort and that happiness in her heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love that. All of it. Josh. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think with the, um, I'm not sure with um, Sharita, the actress who plays her, I'm not sure what her nationality is, but with the influx of Asian hate crimes, um, mm-hmm. am I perceiving that she is of Asian descent? Um, she is. Her, her mother's Japanese and her father is Jewish. So yeah, it, it hit harder in a way watching the goons hitting, you know, um, not hitting on her, um, harassing her. And then, you know, for Donnie to step in a, but the, yeah, you're reminding me the, 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 the lingling of it all. Um, it does feel like tonally that Richard Kelly subconsciously was woke to that choice calling it out to a degree, at least today, my, my projection is that it did feel like just as Donnie was kind of calling everyone out this imperfection. Well, it was so blatantly imperfect. Like, you know, I just thinking back from my like Spanish textbooks or mathematical, you know, um, uh, problems with caricatures and everything, nothing from as far back as I can remember late eighties was ever that terribly blatant. And I think especially as a film made in, you know, whatever it was, 98, I have, I, I'd like to think anyway that Richard Kelly was sub, subtextuously, um, subtextually calling out um, uh, the imperfection of the time with that decision. And that it did feel like that, you know, if it were remade today or it felt like, you know, a line potentially cut from that beat would have been Donnie also calling out. And why the fuck mm-hmm. is it lingling? Why isn't it like Leonard um, you know what I mean? It it did feel like that that tonally, um, that energetically, it would have been the next step. Um, it was it was it was hard to watch those scenes when it came out um, of two white bullies, especially as a kid who was like chubby and bullied. I mean, I'm I'm a white kid from an affluent suburb, but still to recognize that position and the fact that she's a woman and a minority at that, it hit all the harder this time rewatching it, but. Um, uh, Carla's reminder that she does wake up smiling, which I, I, um, forgotten, uh, is warming for sure. Yeah, she's, I mean, she's, um, she's so invisible throughout so much of the movie, aside from when she's getting picked on, like even her performance at the talent show was like actually quite beautiful. (laughs) She looked beautiful. The backdrop was great. She put so much like work into it, like the, the production design, the, the performance. And, and, and it really, um, it really struck me that, you know, the applause was just so tepid. There were all people like, the sea of white faces. Yeah. Like, okay, what the, what the hell was that? Um, and so, and, and that was, that was really striking. And I was actually going to say exactly what you said, Carla, with that, you know, she is, she goes through so much of the film invisible when she seems to, to be this character with so much innocence and so much heart and so much to say and, and, and do and present to the world that she doesn't really have a chance to. And the fact that she is seen by Donnie, um, and and that that 
brief moment, Donnie, who is also so beloved by her, you know, as we see on her notebooks, her little drawings with the heart bubbles and stuff, um, mm. you know, yeah, that she that she finally is felt acknowledged, um, even if it had to happen in some alternate universe, alternate reality, it happened and she woke up with that knowledge. And I think that that's, yeah, that she, she served such a, such a, one of the, you know, few optimistic, I'd say purposes of the, of the story. Yeah. Sasha. Um, get, ditto again. Uh, Lauren brought up the set, which I wanted to bring up as well at the talent show. Her entire backdrop, I mean, it was so elegant and so beautiful and nobody, like, the sparkle motion team, they didn't, it was just whatever. She had these swans that were, like, floating. There were fall leaves that were blowing. It was all out. And so it was really interesting that she had this huge set backdrop for her when she is such a invisible character um and then i know carla pointed out the mongrel and all of that but for me i i actually made a note with the dance and then i said because she was sitting in front of the bulldog and for me a bulldog is like strength it's that that powerhouse like you're not going to necessarily see me coming but i'm gonna get you like it for me that visual of her especially in her white dress sitting under the bulldog was more strength than anything else is how i read that that one scene um but i totally see where you're coming from carla and that you know potential badness of the entire thing with the if the you know knowing that they're the mongrels if they were the bulldogs instead of the mongrels it would probably come across very differently that that's the big thing with having minorities in the room when you're writing this like you know check it off against somebody who's asian and be like hey how does this read to you Mm -hmm. it's a very different thing than just putting it in there having this intention in your mind and just flying with it right and it's funny because I didn't even, for me, I guess so, they say they're the mongrels and it's in there somewhere. But for me, that statue reads as bulldog, um, especially with the axe in his head when Donnie does that. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it's interesting to to see that because I didn't notice it and that is my bad. So Well, no, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's something that you're not expected to think about because the the writer is white he's also the director most of the cast is white everybody in the background is white so it's not something that you would necessarily think about um tell somebody who is mixed who has been called a mongrel it's like oh let's not go there and patrick Mm -hmm. soise as jim cunningham when he comes running out on stage and he grabs the microphone that very like like super cool hop that he does like oh um and he's like hey mongrels and in that sense, he's using the the term as, as intended, which is, you know, you um, uh, with the, the, the definition is mischievous, mischievous um, deviance kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that's what teenagers are, are supposed to be in the grown up's eyes. Um, so when you look at it that way, it doesn't necessarily hit the same way as somebody who is mixed, yeah. who has had that background of like, oh, that's not such a great word you want to use. No, I totally appreciate that 
and that's yeah. Um, the other note I have for her is that I just want to give her a hug. I'm sure that she would freak out at that contact, but I just like I just want to scoop her up and hug her and be like, it gets better, baby. I promise you. Right now, you don't think it does because you're in high school and high school is terrible and it sucks, especially for outsiders. But it will get better. I promise. <laughs> Mm-hmm. She's always hugging those books real tight. That's She's true. Yeah, protecting herself, mm-hmm. yeah, shielding herself. Mm-hmm. And I think even though she's invisible, she she's kind of always there. Like in one of the times when um, Donnie is talking to the teacher, and she's outside listening, you know, and she's pulls off her um, um, earmuff. Excuse me, sorry, couldn't remember the word there. Um, and so she's always kind of there. She's, even though you don't know much about her, she's still there and present. And I do love that she is the only one in the end that you see genuinely smile, genuinely have some kind of relief, genuinely have some kind of hope. Because uh, even with Gretchen, you don't necessarily see that. You don't really see it with anybody but her. So it's almost like, you know, she really was able to take from Donnie this sense of, okay, I am worthy and I'm an okay person and I'm a beautiful person and it's going to be okay someday. And I'm actually above a lot of these people and I um, have, you know, maybe I have more depth to me. Maybe I have more character to me than some of these other people do. And yeah, her dance is so beautiful and poetic it's almost like watching a poem come to life you know it's just so gorgeous and beautiful and it's so sad that nobody embraces it and nobody really likes it and nobody just you know gives her any kind of love or encouragement and even what jim cunningham says you know after well that was something it's like oh fuck you i mean really because she just is putting her whole heart and soul out there and it's just so sad to me, especially watching her be alone later. It's just, yeah, yeah. But I just really appreciate that she got that happy. Yes. Yeah. What you what you're saying about the her waking up genuinely happy and having that hope, and I mean, it's also it's so hopeful in the sense that like the the clock has literally restarted. That she mm-hmm. they've, she's been able to travel back in time with this knowledge and do any one of the things that we've seen in the film and not seen in the film, do them over, do them differently with this powerful knowledge that she is valuable and worthy. Mm -hmm. So who knows what Charita will do next? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would love to, you know, I don't know, you know, with uh, Richard Kelly mentioning that he might want to explore the universe more, who knows? I mean, I don't know if it would be even any of the characters from it, but yeah, yeah, that is one thing that I really always appreciate about the ending um, is just watching her face and just watching that true, genuine joy and hopefulness and happiness. And you hadn't seen that at all through the whole movie on her face before. It was just a lot of sorrow. And like you said, Lauren, with her hugging her books and using that as a comfort and as a shield and shielding herself from the world and protecting herself from the world and feeling like she doesn't belong and she shouldn't be seen because of the way she is treated and bullied and harassed um, and just kind of taking that in and not realizing that she is a beautiful human being. And so being able to sort of see that is really, really great in the end. So. Okay, so let's talk about um, the ending. And I just want to know what everybody thinks it means. And do you think the characters actually learned something, the ones that remember stuff, Carla? I think, 
I mean, I'm still torn about the ending, which is one of the great things about this movie is that I can never make up my mind um, what's really going on. Uh, there's part of me that says, well, he is... Um, he Okay, uh, Gretchen dies, and then he somehow goes up to die, and in his dying thoughts, just he fixes the whole world with his death, and things can go back to the way they were on October 2nd, and boom, I fixed it by dying. But I don't, I, first of all, I don't like that interpretation. It's just something that pops up in my head now and then. So what I really want to believe is that what happens is that he finds a way to reset the timeline um, because he sees not only the big storm cloud that's about to tear everything apart and, you know, end the world. He also sees the plane. He knows that his sister and mother are on it. And he, that's, you know, he realizes, well, I don't want them to die. I don't want um, anybody else to have to suffer. If only one person needs to suffer for everybody else not to, then I'm happy to be that person. I'm fulfilled now. I have had an experience with love. I've had an experience of being appreciated and accepted for who I am. I now know that my father, father and mother do love me. It's not like I thought before where I was, I thought I was alone and isolated. Um, so he is free now to make that sacrifice. And no matter how you look at it, it's still very sad because one way or another, Donnie dies. Um, whatever theory you ascribe to, he is giving himself up for the greater good. And um, by the way, I can't ever think of the phrase the greater good without thinking of hot fuzz. And that's another round table where it's like the greater good, the greater good. But (laughs) (laughs) that's just how I think about that phrase. Um, But I, I, I love that ending. I love that it's completely mystifying. I love that uh, before you get that montage with all those characters, or maybe it's after, I don't even know anymore, but the the mom, Rose, is standing by a tree. Her whole, her whole family is hugging each other and sobbing. She's by herself at that tree, smoking with this vacant look in her eye. I think, you know, it might be easy to write that off as coldness, indifference, maybe, but I think that if you're looking at it as as a mother who has just lost her child but who has to hold on and be strong for her for the rest of her family who's trying to reconcile all of these roles that she has to play while she's trying to grieve and she's giving herself a moment to just breathe mm-hmm. and how important that is for her um and always with that actor there's always so much more going on in her eyes than there is in her body. And I think that's one of the, the most beautiful things about her acting. Um, and that interaction with her and Gretchen, where Gretchen's talking to the little neighbor kid, finding what's going on, like Donnie Darko, who the hell is that? And she feels still comple- compelled to wave to the mom and the mom waves back. And there's that moment of understanding, like that quick, Hey, what's going on? Why do I feel compelled to have this contact with you? Um, it's just like a cherry on top of so much beauty at this ending. This ending couldn't be more perfect. Um, even though we do lose a protagonist. And I am forever grateful for the, the fact that they have footage of Donnie Darko being impaled. And they, they chose not to use it. 
that they leave it up to the imagination because first of all, it spares us as a viewer that kind of um, unnecessary grief and just mm-hmm. gore that's unnecessary. But it also gives us more to play with in our imagination to, first of all, you know, to imagine if we really want that maybe he didn't die. Maybe that's just a vessel. Maybe, 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 maybe. Who knows? Who cares? It gives us so much more leeway mm-hmm. to think outside of what they've given us. And I, it's so beautiful. Um, and the ending being so open as it is, is what's immense that it's such a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. And it would have been cheap to show his body. It would have been For cheap. sure. Yeah. Wouldn't have been necessary. Yeah. Would not serve the movie. Yeah. Whatsoever. Perhaps mm-hmm. the vanished into the space time conti- you know they we don't have to know that the body was either found or not he's in some other timeline yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's there's not much more i could i can add to that to carla's brilliant recounting and and um and sum up of it other than that it was a really it might be one of the better endings to a film and more satisfying endings to any any film or of my favorite films i can mm-hmm. think of yeah the 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 morning and yet the silver lining to it the kind of like wink in the end um there's a movie that lauren and i love super dark times i feel like that that director yes. kevin phillips i think he was influenced to a degree yeah it's another ethereal sort of time capsule movie that has a not a similar ending but it, it ends with the a, a perspective shift to the female protagonist where silver lining is kind of felt or implied um, and it reminds me of that. I mean, just just not not in as epic a way because it's not it's not an epic film on the, on the level that Donnie Darko is. But yeah, I think it's one of the better endings to you know one of my favorite films I think I've ever seen or can think of. Yeah, I I'm a bit I'm a bit torn as to whether I mean I I I I think that. Um, Every one of our characters, uh, there is some touch, some thread, some vague remembrance of of this stretch of 20 some odd days or whatever that never was but was. <laughs> um, and, and I and I feel that way simply because of, you know, the the sort of you know, when, when you get deja vu, when you are, we were, Josh and I were walking down the street the other day and we mentioned our friend's dog who has a funny name. And literally that dog comes walking around the corner being, being, you know, walked by, you know, a friend's partner. And um, yeah, there, these, these sort of threads, these sort of supernatural uncanny kind of coincidences just happen in life. And I do think that, you know, there that maybe the the explanation for those things are some some sort of grand scheme far outside of our our human understanding. Um, but I did want to ask you guys, like uh, uh, regarding Frank in particular, do you feel because you mentioned earlier, Aaron, about um, you know Kelly saying that uh, Frank, you know, was honking mm-hmm, the horn as he yeah. was coming around the corner to say uh, to tell Donnie like we did it, we you know to try to save him or something. So. Do you feel that Frank is the only character who is on this ride with Donnie, or is Frank simply this like costumed embodiment of um, of uh, Donnie's like engine, you know, toward toward the mm-hmm. conclusion of the film? 
Go ahead, Carla. I absolutely feel that Roberta Sparrow was on that with them. Oh, I yes. think, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because well, she, good. yeah, I mean, she, um, her walking back and forth to the mailbox is just kind of a thing that's thrown in there. But when I think about the fact that the night could have gone very differently if she had been the one who was run over instead of Gretchen, mm-hmm. how that would have yeah. maybe changed things. When I think about the fact that Donnie wrote her that letter and everything that it contained, um, and that she's, well, first of all, she's standing there reading it. The reason she hasn't moved is because she's standing there reading that letter, that very crucial moment when um, when the boys swerve and avoid hitting her. The fact that she wrote that book. And it's the only time she ever actually received mail. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there are just too many things wrapped up in there for me to discount her as just, you know, accidentally being here. I strongly believe that it's Frank and Donnie and Roberta Sparrow who are caught mm-hmm. up in this vortex together. And um, that there's a reason why she interacts with Donnie the way that she does. And the, and the reason why she stands still at the mailbox when yeah. she does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, I think though with Frank, I think it's a little bit more complicated. I think Frank knows on a more of a subconscious level. I think there's a part of him that doesn't fully grasp it. And so it's like, there's part of him that's traveling back or traveling in time with Donnie. And then there's another part of him that is, you know, not there kind of, I don't know, like kind of split in two. That's how I kind of view it. But I agree with the Roberto Sparrow. Yeah. I mean, I totally have always thought that she was part of it because she's such a prominent figure throughout the movie. So it only makes sense that she would be a part of it. So yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah. 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 That's a great, that's a great point. Totally agree about Roberta Sparrow. I, I am I am on the same page with you, Erin, though, about Frank. I, I think that Fra- I, I don't think the actual teenage boy, you know, mm-hmm. that kid Frank, the sister's boyfriend, was sitting in the movie theater with them. Yeah. Like I think that that's a metaphysical representation. Um, mm-hmm. But and so and in the end too, when he like touches his eye, that could be interpreted either way, right? It could be this sort of like melancholy. Mm-hmm. Uh, realization that some other kid had to die so I could live. Um, but it could also be this just strange, like, why, why do I even feel the inclination to to touch this, you know? And so, yeah, it's fascinating that you can kind of, you can go either way. Yeah. It's a beautiful mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Sasha, did you have anything I want to add to that? Um, no, I think everybody really kind of covered it. For me, I think the big takeaway for me was that ultimately it's kind of giving that illusion of hope. Um, You know, like, just because something happened doesn't mean it can't be undone. Obviously, there are certain things that can never be undone. Mm -hmm. You know, you can never not run over Gretchen. Like, she got run over. Spoiler alert! She's dead. If you haven't seen the movie in the last 20 years, you deserve it. (laughs) Um, but you know, so there's certain things that can't be undone and I get that, but I think the whole theme is that you can kind of undo things. And that's Mm -hmm. for me, all of the people at the end in that sequence where you're seeing their faces, it's them coming to terms with if they're going to make that shift, right? Mm -hmm. Jim Cunningham in his, oh my God, I am the biggest fucking monster on the planet. 
am I going to come clean or am I going to continue to be a monster? You know? And then like Charita with the smile of, okay, maybe things do get better. You know, it's everybody has that moment where it's like, okay, there's almost like that sense of hope or like you could undo some things. So that's for me, the kind of big wrap up of the movie is that kind of moral. It's not really moral. I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Well, it is kind of like that, like a life lesson. Are we going to say something, Lauren? Oh, I was just going to say beautiful question. Like like Carla said, it is this beautiful mystery. Um, yeah. 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 And it's and, you know, with the Jim Cunningham thing, that's an interesting thing about that, because it's like, OK, so we as an audience know that he's this horrible, disgusting predator. We know that. And at this point, you know, he hasn't been arrested because they've gone back in time. So he's not arrested. So even though people know, um, that brings up a a good question. I just want to ask really quickly of everybody. We won't go around, but everybody, do you think he ends up getting punished in the end? Like in any way, do you think anything ever happens to him? Yeah, I don't either. There's no Mm -hmm. way he would just go and surrender himself. He might say to himself, I can fix this on my own. Mm -hmm. And then he can't. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not the kind of thing that you can do without help. Mm-hmm. I have faith that he gets caught, but I'm the stupid optimist, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I think Johnny to expose him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, even though Kitty knows, you, we know who she is, and she's not the kind of person to be like, okay, I'm going to turn you in, because then she'll have to expose herself. Like I said earlier. I think the kid from the video who's living in fear and claims he's not uh, is going to be the one that outs him in another, like, ten years. It'll take him, like, ten years, but he'll Mm -hmm. come out and publicly be like, Mm -hmm. here's what happened. He abused me. He used me for propaganda. This is what happened. So I still have faith that he gets outed at some point, just not immediately. There'll be an Alan V. Farrow talking head documentary that outs Jim Cunningham. Or like the Michael Jackson one. Yeah, the Michael Jackson yeah. documentary yeah. about Jim Cunningham, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, it'll take the Me Too that. movement for somebody to come up, so it'll be at least another decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They'll that's go true. on reaping the benefits of being a white male in America, continuing to do videos and opening up, you know, a, a center. And uh, yep. then maybe eventually he'll go to court a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And who knows what will actually end up happening to him. A few years, he'll make amends and come out and he'll be shining brightly, probably, sadly. Sorry, I'm not an optimist. <laughs> yeah, he'll have a podcast and host uh, the Deplorables Ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we'll go ahead and we'll wrap up there because, I mean, there's a ton more I could talk about. This wasn't as, this was epically long but not as epically long as I thought it might be so I just really appreciate everyone sticking with it I really have enjoyed this conversation so so much and I hope everybody else did too so thank you everyone um I'm shocked that we didn't go another you. few hours personally you're welcome I know I know me too I'm like we can do a second one on this at some point because there was other stuff I wanted to talk about but I'm like okay we <laughs> wrapping up here um but yeah thank you so much so we'll just close out and just have everybody say where they can be found and whatever you want to promote carla hi i am carla and with meg another fellow 
frequent panelist, we have a podcast called Bedwater Up Ahead, and it's character analysis with a twist because <laughs> Meg and I do things the classy way. You can find us on Twitter at bedwetbeheadpod, on Instagram, bed.wet.behead.pod, and wherever you get your classy, sophisticated podcasts full of intelligence and revelation, um, bedwetbeheadpod. You can also find my art at my website, garlatemis.com. That's C-A-R-L-A-T-E-M-I-S.com. And of course, that link will be in the show notes, like it always is when Carla's on. And then just to describe your podcast a little bit further, it's basically, because Carla doesn't swear, but it's basically... Please say it for me. Yes, it's Fuck, Mary Kill. So they take fictional characters and they play Fuck, Mary Kill with them. Oh, yeah. amazing. It's New awesome. Fan. It's it's fun. so much fun. I already typed it into my Google browser, so don't worry. You'll be... Yes. <laughs> it's so awesome. And Welcome to the Boobs gonna- fam. <laughs> and we're going to do one where I'm going to be on there in the future. We're going to play it yeah. with um, Freddy Krueger. Uh, <laughs> <Jason> Mary. <Voorhees. laughs> Mary. <laughs> Wait, what did you say for Freddy? Mary. Mary. Laughter. <laughs> He'll keep things interesting. He's the man. It's a sweater, man. isn't it? It's He's always sweater. out at night. So you get like restful sleep. That's but, but, <laughs> but Michael Myers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Michael Myers, he's very loyal and he always comes home. Mm. And he's pretty quiet, so you don't have to, you know, if you don't want to deal with that, you know. <laughs> There's a certain appeal there. Yes. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a big old F for me. <laughs> <laughs> he's quiet, you know. You can't keep a conversation, you can't that's marry true. him. You can't have a conversation with an immortal slasher. That's true. And I don't know who your third uh, is going to be, but... We're going to have to kill I him. mean, that, yeah, it's... Oh, well, Jason, I was going to say, like, you might... If you don't know what is going on under a mask, maybe it's better, you know, if you're going to be forced to... Honestly, <laughs> it might not be the worst. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. lived with my... with Under the same roof with my child and husband, and we both... We've all gone out wearing masks, and it's been like, kind of blissful. So... <laughs> that might be the secret that's true but that's going to be so much fun i am so excited to record i've already been jotting down notes of who realistically would be the best option as you should because it's all about realism on bedwet or behead (laughs) for sure and then josh uh, I just designed my new, uh, new uh, updated my new website, so I'm really excited about it. If you go to joshesmindhouse.com, um, I've got pictures from the college humor days, behind the scenes of uh, my movies, and um, random character imagery, and some new stuff and some merch. So yeah, I'm. I was. Uh, it was a really nice. Pandemic project. So you can find me on Josh's Mind House and then all my social stuff from there. Awesome. And we'll link that in the show notes too. And then Lauren? I'm laurensick.com and laurensick on Instagram. I don't really do the Twitter thing so much. I'm trying to get better at it. I don't, I don't, I don't really get it. I don't really do it. Um, And uh, yeah, as you said at the top, my my film pair is uh, going to festivals and hopefully going to be available online after that whole run is over. Awesome. Congratulations. And we'll link that, too. So we're going to have a lot of links in the show notes. A lot of links. Active linkage. (laughs) Well, you know what's funny is I don't get Instagram. Like, it confuses me. Someone else handles our Instagram because... 
And it's so much better now that they handle it because I actually have three Instagram accounts for someone who doesn't understand Instagram. And it confuses me so much. I don't know why. I have no idea why it confuses me. But Twitter, I'm fine, Matt. I'm on Twitter all the time. But Instagram, it's like with huh? Twitter. It's some weird. Uh, it's a disconnect. Yeah. I, I, I just wasn't into it from the beginning, so I think I just you know. <laughs> yeah, and Sasha. Um, I'm like Lauren. I don't get the Twitter. Everybody <laughs> knows this. I don't. I don't Twitter. I don't get it. It's weird. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. It's Vegan Geek Chick. Um, if you follow me there, that I actually just today in my bio added my puppy's Instagram because you know every dog needs an Instagram. So you can follow him. His name is Undewey. Um, <laughs> so right, it's funny. Um, and then I cleared this with Aaron. I'm gonna go ahead and promote my husband. Um, does board game design for fun, but somebody actually just cornered him and he was apparently in a mood. And so they are going to do one of his board games. Um, it's called Dead Man's Chess. But if you go oh. to Spyglass Games, um, I think they've got a .com, Facebook, Insta, everything. So it's Spyglass Games. There's an article about him and the game. They're going to put it out on Kickstarter probably this summer. Um, so but I'll promote that through my Instagram as well. So, yeah. I can link that as well. Yay! Thank you, thank you. All the links. I love promoting everybody. So, you know, hey. Yeah. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at E April Beauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one. On Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. If you have any feedback, show notes, if you'd like to be a potential interview guest, feel free to reach out to us at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. And on our next episode, we're going to be talking talking about Doctor Who. And we already recorded this one. And Aaron does not watch Doctor Who. So I was kind of moderating. So <laughs> But it's a great, great panel. And I've been told that if I do not watch some Doctor Who episodes by the panelists are back on, I'm going to be in big trouble. So I guess I got to do that at some point here. I'll do that. <laughs> but until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing and Black Lives Matter. Thank you again for listening to It's a Fandom Thing. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Our logo was designed by Brooke Belly with cover art by Carla Timmies. Additional research was done by Megan Archuleta. Our Instagram and Facebook content producer and creator is Erin Amos. And our producer is Lila Tafola. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe. And remember, keep that fandom spirit alive. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.